0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Grange TV. We have with us two very special guests today. Um, I'll just go, I'm going to, what I'll do, I'll do a little bit different. I'll introduce you guys with what I know, but then I want you guys to introduce each other. So you guys have known each other for a long time. Um, So the winner of three Oakley Big Wave Awards, 2009 Biggest Wave Ridden, 2010 Biggest Slab Award, 2011 Biggest Wave Ridden. Organised along uh, with, I think Ryan Hipwood is it the Red Bull Cape Fear. You organised the first one. You've appeared in many, many films and television series. I think both of you were the brainchilds of um, the crew. Was uh, along with Macario. Um, I don't know other things. Are uh, your proud father, husband? I um, I don't know what else you've achieved. It sound like an annoying overachiever, Mark um so and richie Smashers alumni ufc veteran big wave surfer author and also appeared in many um films and also uh the tv series the crew again i don't know if i've missed anything else a proud father husband um thank you both guys for for coming on the show did i miss something uh, big there that, that you guys did
1: I I'll, I'll just want to talk about Richie's author accomplishment, because we, I went to school with Rich. Like, we've known each other since, like, the <laughs> like, yeah. probably, at school. Yeah. And I don't know that Rich can read or write, so nah. just explain yeah, yourself. yourself
2: like, yeah, do yourself. A big
1: Big-selling selling author.
2: English is like. a second language.
0: I, I asked Richie earlier to send you a text and his nose bled as he, as he was doing it.
1: hasn't <laughs> so, been he
0: has technology Oh. Yeah. yeah um can you can you can you introduce mark like tell me who mark is
2: well mate me and mark we're, we're in our in our early teens um and mark's just a, it was it always been a phenomenal service but as a year old i mean son of the looked up to um and we were just in river we board riders together and we grew up at down in river beach in the in the surf club traveling surfing competing in surf comms both got the big wave bug um you know because the guys from Beach or the Abernam Brothers and Wayne Cleveland, they uh, they were kind of pioneers in big wave surfing in our community. Um uh, and we and we followed that trend and Mark just took to it like a duck of water and, and I just um was tailing, you know, yeah, behind him trying to trying to chase and do it do, doing with Kobe Abbot and um yeah, had loads of fun. we just grew up together, went to school together, uh still the same group of mates down at Maruba that we've always grown up with. And yeah, he's just a an inspirational fella who I've always looked up to. Like I said, he's had plenty of adversity and the way he's dealt with that is Something that I uh, always reflect back on, you know, whenever I'm do- going through tough times, and yeah, now he's lived on the Gold Coast with his young family, Britt and Matilda, and yeah, still, still. When, you
0: know, when, when you saw when you growing up, your vision of Mark was it someone that you thought was just really good at surfing, and it came natural to him? Was that some someone you looked up to in that in that regard?
2: Yeah, it definitely seen that way, absolutely. And I like Mark. Mark is always says, uh, sort of paints it differently, but I always looked up to him. Like, yeah, he was just. You know, one of the best serves on the beach, especially for his age. Um, and, uh, mate, he, he was always a little different from the back, too, because he just he sort of, you know, walked to the beat of his own drum, uh, still got out and had some fun with us and partying and whatnot. But he always had a goal uh, that was set and was already pretty d- uh, driven and, and uh, quite disciplined, to, you know, to get, to get that goal, which was...
0: And that's from a young yeah, age. You could yeah, see that from me, a young yeah, age?
2: Yeah, that age, and, and especially from our little group of mates, too, those, or... Bunch of rack bags and discipline and goal setting weren't, weren't a big thing at all you know so that's something that i yeah always like sort of looked up to and and uh wanted to try take note of it, it took me about 50 years to try and work <laughs> it out but, but i try to um yeah try to take a page out
1: of mark's book with a few
0: things excellent mark who's richie i think
1: like what, the way rich summed up me there's so many similarities but there's one glaring difference with rich <laughs> Big wave surfing was not scary enough for Rich. Okay. Like, riding 50-foot waves, having huge, huge tons of water, like, trying to drown you was not scary enough for him. So, he had to go off and become a UFC fighter. <laughs> that's yeah. the glaring difference.
2: Small man syndrome, um, I told you, Mark. I just, I just uh, really That's what I put very it very very
1: down much. to as well. Did it, did uh, it seem uh, like things some, came... Some element of small
0: man. Did it seem like the surfing and the fighting and whatnot came easy to Richie? Or... How was your vision of him? Like When you, you, you when you would see Richie, did you think, fuck, this guy's got it all together, he can surf well, even though you're close, or what did you see?
1: I mean, for the both of us, we were like, you got to understand, we weren't the best surfers out there. We were never going to be world championship tour level surfers, but we still wanted careers in the sport of surfing, and the pathway that led us down was big wave surfing, basically because hardly anyone else wants to put themselves through that so we figured okay we'll just figure out how we can sort of manage the fear and the stress and go out and still ride these big waves okay when, when to this this is to, out of it and then um get to live that lifestyle so,
0: this is to both is when you say nobody wants to put themselves through that for big wave surfing what what does that mean e- Whoever, whoever don't care who answers
1: Oh, People love riding big waves, right? It's one of the best feelings you can have in the sport of surfing to ride a wave bigger than anything you've ridden before. It's a it's a rush, but it's really scary. And then to want to do that month in, month out, big swell after big swell after big swell, like there's a lot of guys capable of outperforming either one of us on in one big swell, but then to be able to do it over and over and over and over again throughout the year, year in, year out, that's a, that's a different mindset, like that's, that's something that requires some sort of uh, different level of motivation to keep doing that. And I think when, when other surfers, top level surfers have the option to be able to compete on the world tour, then more power to them. I, if I had that, I probably would have taken that route because that's a, that's a, um, a pretty enjoyable experience. Uh, but we didn't have that. So it's kind of like you're forced down this trail of surfing huge waves. But then as you learn to sort of slowly start to master it, you you fall in love with it. Like it's the being able to test your skills in that crazy environment, still be able to manage it. There's something about it that, that you fall in love with it. And for me, that's where I see Rich as like, it's not that it became easy for him in the surf, but it's like he, he just was so addicted to that level of adrenaline that that level of pursuit after like doing something that not many people can do that he went down that route and chased that UFC and that was um like that's pretty crazy to me to me when I watch UFC fighters it's like to me that that's the pinnacle of the management of stress fear anxiety to be able to perform at that level utilize and access your skill set at that crazy heightened level of stress because there's the stress of millions of people watching you—that—that that will be there to criticise every action you take, watch you if you fail. But then also on top of that, you have the added element of crazy amounts of physical danger, harm, and and possibly death. You know, so to me, that's the ultimate. Like you, you're packaging everything in there. Big wave surfing is crazy because you do have the physical da- harm, like the danger aspect. But there's not that element of a million people watching you right when you're surfing that's why i was so fascinated following rich's career as he went down that ufc path and how he managed that to me that was uh it's inspiring i think like every every sport can learn from from that
0: yeah it went was, a bit yeah, off track it's, yeah. it's no, no 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 please but, that's like Marcus,
2: uh, i felt like it, that was the biggest struggle um for me, anyway, you know, inside the octagon, it was managing that that fear and stress, and you know all the pressures you put on yourself. But like you said, you're under a bit of a microscope. Um, you know, and, and surfing, I think we were so lucky in the fact that we grew up with such a tight knit group of mates who were all trying to chase that same goal. You know, and it was super competitive. Uh, it was loads of fun. There was a lot of camaraderie and. Uh that also you know, I think I think we were lucky that we weren't doing it one out, otherwise it would have be been much harder to to achieve and, and, and push yourself, chase that swell after swell. Um, if we weren't doing such a you know a, a a close good bunch of mates. And um yeah, and then and then when it came to fighting, it was just again it's just exposure therapy, just like surfing and you know, just the more I sort of put myself in that environment where you know, when I remember when I first saw a guy sparring, I was like, Wow, oh, yeah, they're punching the shit out of each other. Yeah, how do you have a want to do that and then you, know, you slowly get, get enough skill to try it out and then you, you know it's the same if you go surfing you go out there and you expose yourself to it enough you sort of get a little bit of comfort with it um but yeah i, I did i did for whatever reason get more find myself getting a little more comfortable in the ocean maybe because uh it's i, I grew up around it I was, I was around it so often inside the octagon there's always that a bit more level of anxiety and and fear or yeah, stressful. I think even though it's a safer environment, you know, it sounds funny. That, that's like, what I
0: asked you before. I remember asking you after one of your fights. I said to you, "What? what's scarier? And you said to me, you felt it was safer in the in, in the UFC than in the big surf.
2: Totally, totally. I mean, when you're out in the big surf, especially some of the ways that we were chasing, you know, you're in the middle of nowhere, um, yeah, and the ocean is way more powerful than anything you can experience in the octagon, you know, and things go pear-shaped pretty quick, and you know, like we've seen lately too, just being in environments where big fish too, they, you know, they... They're always in the back of your mind, but things go pear-shaped. There's no assistance. There's no help. Like, like Mark will tell you, we thought he broke his neck when we were surfing Shipstone's Bluff in Tasmania a long time ago, and that was one of the most terrifying things I've ever gone through for myself, and I wasn't the one injured. It was Mark, and just to see your mate lying on a boat thinking he's broken his neck, and we, we were like miles from, from anywhere, you know, on his little rickety ab-diving ab boat to sort of go like one knot an hour to get back to the to finally get back to our, you know, the the harbour and uh, just things like that. Whereas in the octagon, you've got doctors on uh, right next side of the cage. There's a ref who can, you know, he can pull you out of trouble if you can't protect yourself. He knows that you've got the option to, to tap or get it out of there. So, in, in that sense, it's far more safe inside the in the octagon. But it's um, it's still, I think, like like Mark was saying, when you're under that microscope, that's a, an added level of, of anxiety. It's, yeah, it's a defi- As
0: far as anxiety, I definitely think yeah, that yeah, that's the UFC scrutiny. Thing. I think is a term that we're probably. Saying because you, you know, you know, like I can't surf, I'm trying to surf, and um, like I've never fought, but I've competed in grappling and I've you know been around it and that. And when I wipe out on a small wave, I just always I actually always think of you, Mark. I'd just like you to know that in a nice, <laughs> nice way because of that thing with shipstone, right? Which I, I'm going to ask you to speak to in a second, but. You take those little, like, when I I say more wipeout, like, there'd be fucking little kids that'd just go straight past it. But you still feel the power of the ocean and there's nothing, like, zero, nothing you can do, like, when a wave wipes you out. Like, you can't stop it. Like, it's, and that's, like, my waves, which are embarrassing. I wouldn't even talk about it. You'd probably wade through them. But can you speak in particular to that moment at Shipstone, what happened?
1: Yeah, that. To me, that was like a defining moment to me because a few things led to that wipeout that helped me understand that I needed to approach my career in a different way. If I was going to survive it, basically. Um, So, down at Shipstone's Richie and I chased a huge swell down there. And there's probably, I don't know if you think this, Rich, but that was probably one of the biggest swells I'd ever seen down there at that point in my life. So it was kind of in the 15 to 20-foot range. Huge, and Shipstone's a wave that comes out of really deep water, then breaks on a shallow reef in front of a cliff face. So you have crazy amounts of power in the wave. And then the fact that it's shallow means that you can hit the bottom. Like that's the added extra danger. And uh, that's what happened to me. I, um, I wiped out on, on an average wave and the wave picked me up, smashed me into the reef and the back of my head hit the reef. I was really lucky at the time that I was wearing a helmet and it was the only time I've ever worn a helmet in the surf and I was wearing it because there was a camera attached to the helmet and that was the only reason because we were trying to get some new footage of of what it looked like to be inside a barreling wave. And that that helmet saved my life because there was a hole about this big in that helmet. So that's what would have been my skull if uh, if I wasn't wearing the helmet. And just because of the force of the whiplash, I think what ended ha- happened and what we found out later was just my the the discs in my neck kind of compressed on all the nerves and then I had that that sort of pins and needles and dead feeling all down my body and my arms and that's why I thought I'd broken my neck. How how so could you risky, move your hands and feet? No, there was a moment when I was underwater where I couldn't move at all, but oh. I don't know if that was because of the neck injury or it was cuz I was like partially unconscious for a moment. And then and then I was like floating and couldn't move but I didn't know where I was at that point until I surfaced. And then when I came up from underwater and kind of got a glimpse of where I was, because you see the big cliff face of, of Shipstone's bluff where this wave is. And then it like hit me what had happened and where I was. And then the pain set in like that burning pain. And by that time I could move, but I was in so much pain. And then luckily Richie and, uh, another surfer who was there, Dan Ross, they came in and rescued me, got me up onto the boat but I was kind of screaming in pain like my neck, my neck, my neck and uh, so what they did was sort of as best they could just brace my neck using towels and stuff and and laid me down on the boat and we're in 20 foot seas so the boat's rocking and rocking and bouncing and, and I'm freaking out in how much pain I've got and so these guys are all holding me down to try and to to hold me stable just in case I'd broken my neck and then that was going to split my spinal cord. You know, that's, that was the thinking that was going on. And it was so terrifying because it took probably eight hours to get from where we were back to a hospital and then get scans on my neck. And in that eight hour period in my head, it was just like, I'm never going to be able to surf again. You know, my career's done. The, the thing I love the most in life is finished. I, I kind of knew that I hadn't done the damage where I wasn't going to be able to walk because I could move my legs and feel my hands and move them and stuff. So I, I knew it wasn't that bad, but in my head, I just thought uh, about those type of injuries like uh, Andrew Johns and those football players get when they they injure their neck enough so that they they can't ever play football again, you know, like they can walk around and do all other stuff, but then they can't play football. And I thought that's what had happened to me. So. And I was just waiting in that whole time thinking that until the doctor finally comes in and basically says, man, you're, you're, you're one lucky dude. If you had of, you know, if there had been more damage to your neck, then, then you wouldn't be able to surf again. But he was, you've just compressed the nerves. It's going to be fine. You're going to be surfing again within sort of six to eight weeks. And he said to me, he's like, you'll probably be back down here for the next big way, big swell at, at Shipstone's Bluff. And I was like, I wasn't back down there for the next well or the <laughs> one after all the one after that. And he was right. I recovered physically quick. I was surfing again, absolutely fine. But I was terrified to go back, back down there and surf. Like that was such a shock to me because I'd had thousands of wipeouts up until that point where they look crazy, but you come up absolutely fine without a scratch on you. And that was the first time it became really apparent that things can go that wrong that this sport is that dangerous. And uh, it just made me rethink the way I was doing what I was doing. Because that, at that point, I felt like I was burning myself out. Like I wasn't taking care of myself. And I would turn up to swells so run down and absolutely exhausted. From what? But still go out there and surf huge waves.
0: What, what were you burnt and out it, from?
1: Just the constant there were a few different things firstly like the standard things of horse shit diet uh not sleeping well overtraining, and uh and then the the main one that i found the most interesting was and and you guys would know this for sure like being athletes and performers is that when when you have this what happens in surfing right we have you see a huge swell on the forecast. So you know that in a week's time, seven days time, you're going to be surfing 20, 30 foot waves, terrifyingly huge waves, right? And when you get that forecast, you're like, okay, for the next seven days, it's like your mind goes into overdrive, right? It's like, for me, it's like someone turns a TV on that sits in the back of my head. And that TV just plays out all the different ways that I might wipe out and drown or die in this in this world in seven days right and if if i allow that tv to grab my attention enough and sort of dwell on those thoughts and that train of thought too much by the time i turn up on the day to surf my body physically feels like i've been through a thousand wipeouts before i've even put a foot in the water and and that that's that that mental stress, that projection of what might happen in the future, taking a physical toll on your body. Even though in that whole week you, you, you haven't even been through one wipeout, but it's just the the yeah, thoughts in your head.
0: But creating physiologically, that physiologically, yeah, your amygdala's that, pumping and the adrenaline's exactly. pumping. And so it's actually, you know, people say it's all in your head. It's like, no, nah, dude, your head, first of all, head runs a show, and then physiologically. It affects it like your serotonin levels, dopamine, and and your adrenaline just pumping because your amygdala is just going off. Like you're in fear. That's exactly what exactly that.
1: And and it's then for me, advice. it was like, okay, how can I manage that? You know, how can I how can I detach from those thoughts enough so that I can turn up on the day and not feel exhausted? Because the bad wipeouts and especially that one at Shipson, they always happened when I was run down and exhausted. Every time I turn up on a day not feeling exhausted, and when I say exhausted, I have I mean, like, physically sick. Like, you feel like you've got the flu, you could have fever, muscle aches, like, p- proper fatigue f- from that stress, you know? And even just, and like so decision And so, to me, that, that was the, yeah, managing that was, became the most important thing for me. And all the things help, like, diet, exercise preparation is is the main one. Like you've got to do the amount of preparation. If you've left no stone unturned, then that kind of quiets that men- mental chatter down a fair bit. But then it's all the like smaller mental hacks that you can utilize so that you don't get completely caught up in those negative train of thoughts. Because And that's different for everyone. Like I'm hyper neurotic where I, I, I have a tendency probably to overthink things too much and think you know, really bad thoughts all the time. Like, so it's, some people don't get that as bad. But for me, like, that just became the most important thing. And this is whatever I could do to break that connection. And then I just uh, have over the years used uh, tens and 20, 20, 30 different techniques week in, week out that kind of helped me manage that. Everything from different meditation style techniques, from picking up different hobbies that I can do, during that week lead up that will take my mind off what i'm about to do um all those different sorts of things it just became so apparent how important they were to me and that's why i'm so fascinated when i watch ufc fighters because it's like man what are you doing you know in in the because you you know you know two three four months out when you're going to be fighting on that exact day who you're going to be fighting which is even worse because then that, that it's given your brain all this information to imagine all these scenarios but then in training you got to go through all those scenarios and play them out over and over again so to me it was always like that's so fascinating how you must manage that exhaustion you know but then it's like i guess that there is the crazy come down after the fight of being the fatigue must set in for months, and that's why you can't fight back to back to back to back. You know, so. And like I said, yeah, I find that aspect of performance fascinating. The, w- the way
2: you explain it, Marky, with that, that TV going on the back of your head—that's I mean, that's exactly what it's like. You know, what I mean, it was for myself too. And as the fights got bigger and the opportunities got bigger, the stage got bigger, that TV would just was started to play louder. You know, and it was um, there. I, I totally feel you on that. It was exhausting, just constantly thinking about scenarios and what's going to happen and. Then you know, add a, a really large training week on top of that for, for months leading into the fight, you're, you're cutting weight and dieting. But it's that that mental exhaustion. It, I think it's probably key to like why I felt so burnt out in, in many of my lead ups too. Because in your downtime, in your rest time, it's just it's just the opposite. You're still there. You still got sweaty palms. You're still thinking about your opponent and you know this situation, that situation, and um, yeah, the way you explained it, I can really relate to because I, I experienced. The same, not so much with uh, with surfing, you know what I mean? Like I sort of, because I, I, I could never read the forecast as good as you, like, I was just you,
1: like, you didn't even like, know.
2: I, like, I had no idea until two or three days out where you were like, "Bitch, you pack your bubble bags, we're going on Tassie, we're going on WA. So I was lucky in that respect. Yeah, you'd only
1: really have one or two days to worry <laughs> yeah,
2: about. Yeah, I was. I, didn't, I, didn't, I couldn't turn the computer on to even check the forecast. So. But, uh, but for fighting, totally, I would... Uh, I'd burn myself out thinking about it and wonder why, like, you know, I'm eating well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting enough rest while I feel so rubbish and I've got no energy for training so much. And,
0: and sometimes yeah. the weight won't go down because, like, the cortisol, the adrenaline, the cortisol makes you hold the weight. Exactly I hold the my weight in my, in my stomach.
2: Yeah. That's exactly my experience. When I when yeah. I was fighting at my lightest, I was walking around at my heaviest. Like, I'd never walked around 70 kilos in my life and so it's hard to fight at 57 kilos. Then I couldn't get under seventy. Like you know, in my day-to-day life it was crazy. I think so. Those, yeah, the weight cuts were so added more stress to it, which I'm sure increased that cortisol and made it tougher to get off. And then, yeah, but um, man, like like you mentioned, it's the control center. If you can get the head right and start implementing some of those little hacks that you're talking about, Mark, life becomes a lot easier, a lot more manageable, and then your performance will uh, will benefit. You know?
0: Do you know who uh, Semi Schilt is, Mark? Have you ever What's heard Semi Schilt? Have you ever heard of him? I have heard of that name. He's, he's basically the, the best kickboxer of all time at, at the point. Like, he he's beaten everyone from his generation, and he also has wins over Badahari and Rick over Hooven. He won three K1s, and really a fourth because K1 stopped and their glory started. He
2: would have been watching – remember in um in, uh, Philippines, Mark, or all the K1 videos, all the videos yeah. they had, this resort was there. He would have been
0: he, – He's you know, basically – he's won the most out of – at most K1s. And that, not only do you know you're going to fight, um, say, in three months, but then when you get there, you have to fight, if you win the whole thing, you probably have to fight three times in the night. And so you fight and then you have another hour, two hours to wait till your next fight. And if you win that one, you, you got another hour to until the next one. And you're not fighting pussies, you're fighting probably yeah Co-crop. yeah yeah and you're fighting you, oh it's God. it's for the physically i would say harder than the ufc in the fact of how the rounds are made they're short rounds made for complete excitement with heavyweights at, at that time too and when I, I had him on the show like last week it's, it's not out yet but he, i had him on the show it will be up by the time this one's out it will be out so and one of the things that i noticed with him straight away and i said it to him was like he's he's got like this fucking focus like through the through the screen you know And he's retired Mm. but he's got like this intensity that you're like fucking it's it's intimidating you know what i mean through the screen and then i was talking to him i was like, how'd you do this sam and he "How how'd you do how do you win okay one is hard but how do you win four you know what i mean at that level and the stuff that he was saying it wasn't like I don't think he even knew, but he was just able to, like, he goes, no, you just get there and you just focus on the next thing and then you focus on the next thing. He goes, and then I have a fight. He goes, and then I just think, okay, now it's time to relax. He goes, and I just don't think about things. And, and I was saying to him, Dude, do you understand how much, like, if you could bottle that, what that would mean? Because, <laughs> cause, like, what he's saying, he's going, no, no, it's like you just.
2: So simple to him. Yeah. You just don't think about it. Like, yeah, that's such a, a gift a talent to have in that. No. Yeah,
0: and then you put that into uh, like a genetic gift. He looked like a genetic engineer's wet dream. He's like six foot eleven, a hundred and thirty kilos, and athletic. Like that's his actual. That's what he actually is, you know. And you, it's, but that ability to just fucking control that is is insane. And and in your environment, the thing that I find that even worse than fighting though, the big big waves, is you have. Rocks, you have reef, you have big waves, you have the jet ski fucking up, you have a jet ski hitting you, you have sharks, you have all sorts of stuff. Um, what's the worst wipeout that you've had? Either one of you, both of you, the, the worst wipeout?
2: Whoa.
1: What's yours, Rich? I'm
2: sitting here now in a sling just come out of uh, shoulder, Rico. So, I'd probably say physically. With My my worst wipeout was the last wave I caught, which was about a month ago, over at Cape Salander at Cape Fear or ours, the wave that uh, me and Mark sort of grew up surfing and where he uh, had the Red Bull Cape Fear comp. Uh, it's an amazing wave, but it does have, similar to turns. it comes out of super deep water, breaks on a really shallow shelf um, in front of cliffs. Also has a bit of backwash too, so you get uh, you know, steps like the turn on, on occasion, but also you get backwash coming off the cliffs too. and and um yeah it was a Sunday afternoon the swell was picked up you know went from sort of four to six foot to ten or twelve foot within a few hours which is pretty rare for like the east coast and it was just the last one more before we go in It was getting dark and um yeah it just got yeah it was was a big way it was like a ten foot and it just just kind of ran off the reef a bit and just went really square at the start and then kind of went pinched a little bit and i was just in the wrong spot the wrong time and, and the lip landed on my shoulder and yeah just blew it to bits and
0: Wait, just the the, the, the sheer force of so it wasn't the wipeout that dislocated your shoulder, it was the lip of the yeah, wave it, that broke.
2: Yeah, it was just that that impact, yeah. And initially I, I thought my first concern was my teeth. It hit me so hard I slammed my, my mouth shut and I thought I chipped all my teeth. So I'm rolling around in the water going like just making rolling my, my tongue around my mouth trying to find what teeth I've lost. And then um and then I had that sensation down my arm, like that tingle, I was like, Oh, that kind of feels familiar because 'cause I've dislocated a shoulder before and and uh, yeah, realised my shoulder was out because I couldn't swim. I couldn't. I couldn't move my arm, and and then uh, so that was, yeah, that's obviously in, a, in the forefront of my mind. So that's probably the worst one. And definitely, it's the, it's the worst. Yeah, you know, worst wipeout I've had that I've come out with such physical damage. You know what I mean? I feel pretty lucky. over, yeah you know, years of doing silly stuff that never had to had any major surgery. Um,
0: Is that the shoulder you'd always dislocate? Yeah.
2: I had to discount my left shoulder surfing again in similar um, similar circumstances, but smaller waves on the beach. And the lip landed on my shoulder and I've dislocated my left shoulder before my fight in, um, down in Melbourne, the UFC in Melbourne. But that went straight back in. I was able to rehab and fight within 10, 10 weeks. Yeah? So I kind of went into this injury, kind of optimistic. Like, oh, I've had a shoulder reconstruction before, uh, sorry, a shoulder dislocation before. I know what to expect. But, yeah, days after the injury, I started to realise this feels totally different. I can't, I've got no movement. Um, it feels super loose whenever I walk or if I was to jog or whatever, I could feel it moving around. And then got the MRI. We saw me, me and Mark's good, weight, good mate, Wade Harper, who's put us both back together. And um, he actually laughed because he likened to an injury Mark's had, had in the past too from surfing, yeah, like 100-foot jaws. And, um, yeah, just had all the ligaments, all the tendons, the rotator cuff, were all blown a bit. So I had to go on a knife. And, that, and that's, like I said, that's what's, Kind of keep it in perspective. Like it's the first time I've had to have something like this in my, you know, in my life after, you know, having a pretty lucky career injury wise. Um, but that that was uh, a bad one because I, looking back at it too, that impact hit me so hard. It, I could have, you know, been unconscious pretty easy or hit the reef and, um, yeah, just just I'm just when I think back of how hard that lit, hit me.
0: That's ridiculous so, though that it
1: hits that hard. Was it? Yeah. Was there waves behind the one that you wiped out on? Because you've got to understand, what, th- this wave breaks only 10 feet from a cliff. So where you fall off on the wave and you finally surface, you're usually one or two meters from a rock face with more waves approaching to smash you into that rock face. So Richie, you would have been there with one arm trying yeah. to fight against that. Well, i again, it, it must've been the last wave of the set was. It, was, yeah, it was look, such That's such a big that's, wave. That's,
2: again, it's keeping everything in perspective for me because I was so, so lucky because one or two waves before this, I, I um, the was again. It was a pretty big one, but it was one of the first waves of the set. I didn't make it out the barrel, and I came up to just like twelve footers on the head, and I've never been washed so far in the bay before because it was just like one after the other. Pop up, just jasper, get a breath, and another white water smash me, and I'd be like rolling across rocks, and you know all the way to where you where you've got to finally get in, and if you're to you know paddle and get back at the rocks, it's a couple hundred meters in into the Botany Bay, and I end up all the way in there, and. Had that have happened on the way I did my shoulder, I would have been in all sorts. I don't know if I would have handled it. So, again, pretty feel like I was pretty lucky there that when I did my shoulder, there weren't too many ways behind it and I was able to get my way to the channel relatively quick and pull myself up on the, the back of the sled and get on the jet ski and then some sort of the pain and reality kicked in that my shoulder was sitting in, in my armpit. So,
1: but so you- That type of fatigue, but you know, because I always wonder this in with watching UFC fights. Like, because, you know, that moment when you're watching a UFC fight, it's like fatigue sets in so bad for one one guy that he just cannot do anything. Like, and I always imagine that must be like when you are getting smashed by multiple, multiple waves. And there's then there's this point where it's like you're at the mercy of the ocean. Like, you yeah. cannot physically do anything left to fight. You have nothing to fight, even though it's such a dangerous situation and you have all the motivation in the world and you've trained so hard you just cannot beat that, that level of fatigue. Like, is that what you hit in, in moments in fights or training where it's like, like, because you stand, uh, from a, an idiot armchair perspective of, of being a spectator in UFC, you're like, why won't you just put your hands up or why won't you just keep throwing them right now? Like, you could have won the fight, but it's like, it must just be that feeling where it's nothing you can do can solve that.
2: I think I've, I've hit that feeling more so in training, you know, where, where your coaches and your trainers have structured the session for you to hit that hit that feeling and hit that scenario. Um, and l- luckily, in, in inside the cage when I've competed, I'll, I've been exhausted, but always to the point where you kind of go, and, and a lot of time with fighting and where you said, Mark, you're like a, an overthinker of a lot of things, s- sometimes I can, when it comes to the actual act of, of surfing that wave or, or stepping inside the cage, almost – as little thinking as possible for me is best. I want to go on autopilot and and hoping all that training that I've done in the lead up just kicks into gear and it's the same when I'm surfing. I don't want to overthink what I'm doing. I just want to try and let go of the rope or paddle in and just go off instinct and and, and, uh, not overthink it because overthinking comes back to bite me anyway. But, uh, yeah, when I have been fatigued, you know, inside the cage, just luckily that I can click in that sort of autopilot and keep looking like I'm performing, you know, I've never felt, like I said, in training, I've often just been so exhausted with fresh bodies on top of me, fresh bodies on top of me with it. Like you do spit the dummy a little. You just surrender to it. Like I'm just getting ragged. <laughs> and like, it's just, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, the feeling sucks. But again, like I've been, you know, in the ocean, I've been flogged at, you know, um, you know, enough times, not really to the point where, cause like I'm sure like at jaws or something, ways waves like that were super deep and you, you get pushed so deep so many times and and that level of should be different to my wipeouts have been short brutal but you know luckily not pushed to the point where i just got to surrender and just hope for the best
0: there's, there's different types of fatigue as well uh, i can only say it like within like a combat sport more than surfing but i'm sure in surfing you, you'd be able to tell me this as well um there's like a neural fatigue that occurs as well like, if you watch – one of the guys that does it the best, I, th- I think, is uh, Nick Diaz. does it very, very well to other people. So, he walks people down and, like, he, when he's, like, taunting you and that, he's, you know, giving you a false distance. Mm. So, you think, I'm going to hit him from here. You swing, you don't hit him. And – or you hit him, but you're not really hitting him. And he's walking you down. And so, what you're doing is constantly reacting – to what he does, reacting to a faint, reacting to a taunt, reacting to his strikes, and the guy—he's very fit. But the guy, like neurologically, you can't—that—that's the first system to go. You know what I mean? Like the neural fatigue's the first one to go. So it starts to happen where you, you, you—the you, guys look really, really, really tired. And yeah, Nick Diaz is fit, but this guy that you're watching—it's not like he just rolled off a bar stool. This guy's fit yeah. too. But the neurological fatigue starts to like you start to lift your hands that second too late where he's got you a little bit more clean. then he's hit your body and you start to slow, shut down and everything. And I don't know maybe that does that happen in surfing?
1: Yeah, I think it it, it definitely does if you like like if you have a a really bad wipeout like on a huge wave, this happens at, at off Maui. In Hawaii, a wave called Jaws, so it's like the biggest waves that you can possibly paddle into. Your surfing wave is like 40 foot. And um, when you suffer a bad wipeout there with a really long hold down, so you go to the maximum of your breath hold where it's like you you, you have like spasms underwater. So if you hold your breath for long enough and you really fight through the pain, and eventually your your, your body will spasm a little bit underwater trying to like... It's, it's like utilizing what oxygen is remaining in there when you do that then after that i think that's where you feel that type of like fatigue where your decision making goes completely out the window you, you it's almost like in a way you're so tired that it dampens your fear level like and and you're not you can because you can then be get caught out of position in the ocean and then another huge wave will break on you but even though you know it's dangerous, it's like you're so fatigued that that you're just not thinking straight. Like I always think of it similar to, um, like a, p- a person driving a car. Like you, you know when you hit that moment of fatigue when you're so tired, like people fall asleep at the wheel. Like that's not a scary experience at all. It's like the fear dissipates that you and you're just so tired that you just have to rest, and then it goes pear shape. And I don't know if that that's similar. Um, I, like when I was listening to you then, it's so interesting when like a fighter has that forward pressure and it's like the, the other fighter's fighting back, but it's like that, I, I feel like that that sense that what you're doing to keep that fighter off you isn't working. Like that, there must be that sort of moment of realization, like you're doing what your best you can to keep them off you or to hurt them, but it's not working. And then to me, that must, it seems like it must create like a a sort of panic switch, yeah, absolutely, like and that neural and extra, yeah, extra fatigue. That it's like, oh my god, I can't, I, I can't do this, you know. Like, and then that, that, and I heard, um, I don't know if it was Connor or someone mentioned like a, he mentioned it in a way that it was like an energy shift. Oh, absolutely, like, and, yeah, yeah. Like, there's a shift that of, and it's like a confidence shift. Like, so one fighter's confidence gets sucked out, which then also sucks out all their energy level like or their capacity to perform but then it's like if they do land one shot at that moment and it wobbles that the the oncoming fighter it's like all of a sudden then it shifts back and they're like oh hold on a minute like i you know like i'm it's working working." and then it's like all of a sudden they get this spur of energy and it's like why couldn't you access that before but it's like it's some it seems like it's something to do with like a a confidence like panic response
0: well there is a watching that there is there's been many studies where there is a a, a relationship between confidence and arousal and performance um, and yeah I definitely i think once once you're in that situation and somebody is taking your confidence from you like that and especially like what you were saying before it's also not like it's between you and me, just in this room. And then we both walk out. Even though you beat the shit out of me, you've got a black eye as well. But and then I'm gonna tell I'm gonna say, yeah, well, yeah, nah, you might have won, but I got you got a black eye. Now nah, everybody saw it. You know what I mean? Um, there was one thing that I was gonna ask you, Richie, as well, when you were talking about it at um Cape Salander as well. You had a massive wipeout, or at least it looked like a massive wipeout, where you almost cut your throat. Yeah. Again, just don't just say yeah, like that's well, fucking okay. Like, <laughs> this, this is not okay to cut your throat.
2: It was again a little, I mean, unlucky situation, obviously, but then very lucky in a way that when it happened, I just fell on a wave out there, um, was rolling around the water, and my board was really close to me. Which, and you can tell because if there's no tension on your leg rope, you know, somewhere your board's close and you're going to bump into it. Um, and my board being so you know the flotation vice shot to the surface and, and it was shot to the surface nose first and it just happened to catch me in the throat as it was making its way to the surface and
0: like right here eh? right
2: under the chin yeah and uh, it just felt like someone hit me with an uppercut you know, like a big uh you no know, rock me a little bit but got to the surface it was okay like saw me bored and i like, was feeling i just had my steamer and i just put my hand inside my steamer and, and felt something different I was, my finger went inside my throat and then I couldn't see it, and it didn't feel that bad. Like I said, it feel like someone just hit me, like my head got rocked back, but the, the pain of that I'd imagine, it would, like it felt like cutting your throat, just wasn't there. Um, and then I showed someone a lot and they freaked out a little bit. Said, "Yeah, you, you got a big hole in your neck." So you know, got to the you know scrambled up the rocks, got to the car park, showed the boys, you know, that well, what does it look like? Is it bad? Should I go? Should I get stitches or whatnot? And they're all like, you know, I could tell by their reaction, it looked kind of bad. Um, again, because it wasn't so painful, and there wasn't a heap of blood, uh, I was like. I was pretty, uh, I like, you know, pretty, like, laughed about it a little bit. It was, was didn't, didn't take it too serious, you know. But I'm uh, sorry, let's go, you know, jump in the car, we'll go get some stitches. And it wasn't until I got to the, the doctor's surgery, and, um, he said, if there's anything sharper than the nose of your board, you know, you wouldn't have got out the water because it was, it was only millimeters away from your jugular or, or whatever the the, the artery that, uh, um, the, the artery, carotid is the artery, the artery, yeah. The artery that goes to your brain. So that's when I started, like, again, like a little moment of realization, like, that was serious. like Mark and his, at his neck down in ship turns. Like, yeah, that's things that could come out of the blue like that and um, can, can happen in, in what we're doing. So I always admired Mark's sort of calculated approach to surfing these kind of crazy waves. Um, so then I, I started trying, trying to try and take a page out of his book again. Whereas I like to try and switch off a little bit and just and just go and, and think later. I started to try and implement a little bit more calculated risk taking into, into you know, my approach.
0: I've seen footage of that. Yep. Did you get Did you get sucked up into the wave?
2: No, I, on that one I just fell inside the barrel, yeah, and rolled right around my board, and it, it was just yeah, it happens a lot. as yes, you you bump into your board underwater, but this the way this happened. My board was just flying to the surface, and uh, and I was in its way, and it just stabbed me under the neck. And like I said, it just felt like a, a good head knock. Um, and didn't realise it had broken any skin until I sort of yeah showed some friends, and then. Got in. I saw. I was laughing about it in the car park, you know, I like totally uh, blasé about about it. Until I got to the to the doctors and he stitched me up, it kind of like rattled me a little bit at how lucky I really was. And once he said, you know, the way he described it, he said you wouldn't have got out the water. I would, have, you know, you would have bled out and be, you know, dead before before you even make your way to the rocks. That so that kind of scared me, you know. And again, just just brought back you know, the realization of what what we were doing is um, did have that element element of risk, and yeah to not always just at it so recklessly.
0: We, a day at Cape Salander, my wife and myself found a dead body there, like about six, seven months ago, in the water. Good. Yeah, like the guy had been smashed, smashed into the rocks and his face was... Yeah, we called horrible. him... Called Must have been a rock
1: fisherman.
0: I, I, I don't... He, he looked like... He looked like he was just in boardies. Wow. So he might have been swimming or jumped. I don't know. That that, the coppers don't know. No one knows.
2: Maybe like it could could have been from canal. It could have been from river. Like currents. Yeah, the person could have come from here. But that man,
0: that's that's horrible. Yeah, one hundred percent. And there was a Chinese tourist there, and he was uh, he was speaking to my wife in Chinese. My wife's Chinese, and um, he goes, "I'm going to swim out and get the body." And I was like, dude, if you swim out there, mate, you're not, you're not fucking... There's going to be two dead bodies out there. <laughs> like, you know, it's not going to happen. Um, Mark, what's your worst wipeouts? Because we said for Richie to say one, but he went and grabbed two. So, he used up a lot of our time, <laughs> man. Um, feel free to also tell us two. Uh,
1: my worst one was definitely... It's 2016 similar surfing, a big, a big wave that breaks in shallow water and the wave smashed me into the reef and I landed with all my weight on one leg. And at the same time, the power of the wave broke on my back and it compressed me into the reef. And, and with the compression, I just, my knee popped like, and I just felt blinding pain straight away underwater. I got rolled around by the wave and the whole time I'm, I was clutching at my knee, just trying to hold it together. Um, I got to the surface and it was it was uh, Rich and the guys on the jet ski that got me out of the water, dragged me up onto the ski. But I, I'd never felt pain like that before from an injury. Like usually you're in, you have so much adrenaline out in the surf in a big wipeout that, that the pain is so diminished. Like you you don't even think the injury is anywhere near as bad as, you know, what it could be because you do not really feeling that much pain because of the adrenaline this time it was the worst pain I'd ever felt. Like I was kind of just that verge of going in and out of consciousness. When you see stars because pain's so bad and you feel that sweaty, like you're going to faint. Uh, I was like that the entire time. What ended up happening was I completely dislocated my knee underwater. I tore every ligament and tendon that holds your knee joint together. And it broke it broke the bone like that goes into the knee joint. And when I got rolled around because my knee was separated that that tore through the major artery in my leg um and on top of that tore through the the nerves that run through your knee that control your foot like your your ability to move lift your foot and they were able to fix i had seven different surgeries I kind of able to fix everything in my knee joint put it all back together but uh there was too much damage to the nerves so now i I like left with a permanent disability where I can't use my foot anymore, can't lift it. Um, a final surgery that they did was fix my foot at 90 degrees. So my foot now just is, is stuck at 90 degrees like this. My ankle joint doesn't work or anything like that. My foot doesn't go up or down. It's, it just sticks there and and I can't move it around. It's, uh, I was told I wouldn't really surf again that my career was completely over. Um, and for about a year, I thought that would be the case. I had, I don't anyone suffering from nerve pain, man, my heart goes out on yeah, nerve I've pain. Had that. Not that any there's any pain that's not nerve pain, but specific nerve pain is is so debilitating and hard to deal with. It's, it's crazy. Um, I had a year of recovery where I wasn't really getting out of bed. I had a hospital bed set up in my lounge room. Um, I was on heavy, heavy painkillers. Like, I think I was taking probably 100, 120 milligrams of Oxycontin. Like, so I'm basically a heroin addict for about a year. Like, they come in five milligram tablets. I was taking so many to manage the pain. Um, And I didn't think I'd surf again for about a year. And then just, like, with time... um, I, I got to the ability where I could start exercising a little bit again. That, that, that got my like sort of energy levels up and that, that helped with the pain because I could get a little bit of, you know, like that positive emotion from just moving around, doing exercising. And then I could get back in the water and I started to be able to swim. And then I just slowly built the ability to be able to stand back on a surfboard. It was kind of awesome when I could stand up and surf and ride waves again. But at the same time, it was so depressing because it was like, I've gone from professional level surfer to beginner and I could catch waves like a professional and I could see what I was supposed to do on the waves but I just couldn't do it. I had to surf waves like a beginner and that lasted for probably nine, ten months and then it's been like four years now since that injury and I've just slowly gotten myself probably back to about, I now surf at 60 or 70% capacity of what I did before the injury, but it's just good enough to be able to surf big waves again. So, and
2: if you want to look, I've, I've gone there, and tripped trip, trip, away. He's, he's ripping again, getting barreled off his. Yeah, i seen saying. All crazy it, kind of waves again. Well, yeah, there's the a skin craft <laughs> and stuff. That's sexy looking rig there. <laughs>
1: some
2: more skin, Marky.
1: <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was, it was a horrible one, man. It was tough. Man, to it was. With.
2: and like Obviously, just when, when you used... Describing the pain he was in, um, you now we we got Mark to the shore uh, on the jet skis and dragging up the shore. So you,
0: so you were there when when he did the second injury too? Yeah, yeah. So He's a black cloud. Fuck. All right. Can you fucking leave, please? <laughs> we don't want you around here anymore, <laughs> mate. But uh, I know, like
2: a, a wave, like a, a millimetre of water rippled up and touched Mark's injured foot, and he it is. It was agonising. He was like, move your fur off the beach, you know, and the water still touched my feet. I was blown away, but that, yeah, just by that.
0: How demanding he was.
2: (laughs) Yeah, how rude he was. (laughs) But uh, but it was, yeah, it it was crazy. And then, obviously, the road to recovery and everything went through was just, again, inspirational, but just, mate, what he had to to overcome was was phenomenal. Um, And, again. You know what made made all the difference?
1: made all the difference for me was I was in hospital at a point I was probably at my lowest man I was like you get when when do you like there's a few things that force you into like that sort of really bad mental state like sort of that depression and it's not being able to exercise is one of the main things so going from like highly active to laid in bed just day in day out like that has such a effect mentally and then the painkillers and then the pain and not sleeping and all those different things combine. And I was struggling. And then out of the blue, I met this kid in hospital that it was probably three months before I'd hurt myself. And he was in the same hospital. He had slipped over snowboarding, broken his neck. He was a quadriplegic. And he came up to my room to meet me just because he, he was like a surfer, surf fan, young kid. He was like 19 years old or something. And man, meeting that kid, it was, it changed the way I dealt with the injury, like changed my life for good. Cause it, it forced on me this like shift in perspective. Like I went from being so frustrated, so angry, like just hating the world, just like consumed with like self-pity, like for the situation I'm in, like this isn't fair. Like, and that just made me, wor- It like my health worse. And then when I met this kid, I was just like, felt like the luckiest person alive like I could have hit the reef any other way and then been dealing with what this kid was dealing with which it's not even comparable it's like a million times worse and on top of that man he would the amount of courage this kid was showing and resilience and he just come up to my bedside table like could barely hold out his hand to shake my hand big grin on his face dealing with like like nerve pain like you someone in a wheelchair with spinal damage the nerve pain that they feel so he's dealing with the pain I am and a million times worse situation and from that point I was just like right you are not allowed to whinge anymore you know like that's the you know he would give anything to have the injury that you have you know like and fuck man that changed the, the sort of trajectory of me being able to come back and surf like like nothing else has and it's it's Impossible to tell someone, ah, oh, just you're lucky, you know. Just feel grateful, like it could be worse. Like you can't just say that to people.
0: No, because your traumas, your, your traumas are their
1: problems. Yeah, your yeah. your
0: your traumas, your, your traumas
1: are their problems. Yeah, you know? yeah. But just that happening to me and the way that it happened, man, it was life changing. <laughs> and then, so then, it's just like an an ability to like if you can somehow feel find that like silver lining. Or uh, you like shift your focus on that? It could be way worse. It makes all the difference.
0: I I think. I think though that's where you know when you share what, what like you share what you're going through, whether it's a failed business venture, a a divorce, a, a horrific injury, whatever. When that's why the power of speech and the power of talking and sharing stories is so important because you don't have to be a celebrity to share it. Like that kid sharing his story with you in whatever way it was shared, had such a massive impact and hopefully when you put these podcasts out, that impact of, you know, guys like yourselves that are sharing your story impacts other people because that's, you know, like people that have been sexually abused or whatever, they, they think they're the only person, you know, if you're a kid that's been sexually abused or whatever, you think you're the only person that that's happening to and it's happening to you because you're A shit person you know what I mean when in fact it's not happening to you it's kind of happening through you and unfortunately it's something that happens I think it's one in three girls will suffer some sort of sexual abuse and they say for boys it's something like one in six but because of the nature of men coming out and saying they were they reckon the numbers probably even higher it's probably around the same one in three so, you being able to share that story of whatever with someone, whether it's it, – I don't think it matters what kind of trauma it is. Like, it, no. it, it helps someone to, you know, get the, the right perspective in their life, you know. And that kid sharing that story with you might have saved your life, you know, from what, from what you're saying. Because I can't imagine going through what you went through, like – you know, there's, there's days I that a fucking car doesn't car. start and I'm fucking over.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm like, fuck it, yeah, i, I quit. And
1: exactly, like, exactly like you're saying, like, people sharing their stories and just the knowledge that other people are dealing with tough situations and, and they're showing that you can deal with it. Like, it makes such a difference. It made such a difference to me.
0: How, how do you both, like, when you're talking, because, you know, I've heard your story, your background, like, your, was your was it your mum or your dad that was a really good surfer?
1: Uh, my dad surfed like growing up. He was never a really good surfer. He became a surgeon, gave up surfing when he was studying medicine, and then kind of took it back up and taught me how to surf. My mum rode a bodyboard, but my mum was pretty adventurous. And when I was young, like I was terrified of the ocean when I was a little kid. She used to come out and have to rescue me over and
0: over again. Um, were you there yeah, for that
2: i think for us like <laughs> did you see him the black cloud hadn't arrived yet <laughs> no, no yeah. so you hadn't
0: seen him get um rescued
2: no this is when he was like yeah way this young. when i was Me really young. met when we we're like 11 12 you know ah okay
0: yeah, okay okay, okay. okay.
2: But i know he's i know his mum bets and yeah i could i could uh, i could picture it
1: <laughs> yeah i think I, well, the the surfers that made a difference to us was growing up in Maruba and and kobe abernon Abbot and Brothers, Sonny Jai, Wayne Cleveland—like there was a whole host of. It was strange. It was just like this: this host of surfers in this one little beach town suburb, who, for whatever reason, loved to surf big waves, yeah, and there was, was right. just always this competitive said, uh, nature.
2: Howard Rita, there was such like a, yeah. a little core group. Yeah, so grateful.
1: and lucky a, to. And and that and that just rubbed off on us. I think.
0: How much with surfing is it now? I'm not going to I'm not oversimplifying this by saying you don't need skill for big surfing, big wave surfing, but I'm like say for example, if you want to fight, you might not get to the UFC, you might not get to the B champion, but if you're a tough guy that loves to fight and you train hard and you you know, you're not completely gumby, you can get you'll always get fights. You like like I said, you may you you, you know, obviously at the Pinnacle you're going to need skill. But is is big wave surfing not and, and you know you'll understand I'm not a surfer so I think, is it not as skillful as like the normal kind of surfing, but it requires more more gung ho. Like, can you get can you get relatively far without the same level of skill, but yeah, you got more balls. So
2: you're referring to like on the world tour that that's that high level surfing the performance surfing. That's a totally different style of surfing to surfing big waves, yeah. So you don't need to have reco- like you know, that level of skill like to make the world tour to be a professional big wave surfer, um, but the mentality is a little bit different, you yeah. Know? Um, yeah, that's the way I see. It. You don't. like And Mark, I'm sure, would have a similar perspective. Um, like,
1: yeah, you definitely like exactly like you're saying. You, it's it's not a higher skill level, no way. Like, you, I could take any of the top championship ten surfers on the planet, like. Their skill level is like way beyond what I can, the way I can surf. And if I bring them into big waves, they can outperform me in big waves. But it's just the mentality of being able to deal with that fear and stress over and over and over and over again to build a career out of it. That's kind of like the the difference. Whereas, so I take take, uh, Mick Fanning, say three-time world champion, like freak surfer. And I can take him into big waves and and he can outperform the majority of big wave surfers in big waves because he's that good a surfer. But it's like there there, there just has to be this cocktail of motivation to then want to, after you've done it that time, taken all that risk to go out and do it like the following week when another big wave, big swell hits. And then the next week and the next week and the next week and the next week. You know, like there's just a different, you need that cocktail of motivation to do it because it's not, it's not the skill. There is definitely skill involved, but it's not yeah. the highest level of skill. Yeah, there is the, the ability to access the skill under pressure. That's like, you can have high level of skill as a, a, a world tour level surfer, but if the anxiety is too much in the surf for you, then you can't access the skill. Like So it's kind of like that combination of your ability to manage your fear and, and access your potential is like, yeah. that's that cocktail. And then the motivation to do it for long periods of time. Yeah.
2: You, you see it too, I guess, like on the World Tour now. Yeah, they have some amazing events all around the world and some of those events are at, you know, Chopu Tahiti and, and Cloud Break at Fiji. And, and, yeah, it's so interesting to watch because you see some unknown guys who really, like, are able to handle that stress and that anxiety. Big wave surfing you're talking you know, about? this is just like World Tour surfing, okay. high-performance surfing, um, able to, and, and perform, you know what I mean, in, in those kind of ways, which it, it is then, you know, you're, you, call it big wave surfing because the, the, you know, if they get lucky at that event and a big swell arrives, um, the waves are world-class, huge, and phenomenal, um, and you see some some really well-known, famous surfers who are known to be some of the best surfers in the world just not be able to perform um, out there You know, they, and because it, it's all about, I guess, m- managing and handling that anxiety and stress. And they've got the skill set there to to perform like, to do it, but they just can't access it because of the, the fear and anxiety where you see some lesser-known people really rise to the occasion and be able to manage it, those fears and... Yeah, it's a, that's it's such a a cool um, you know world tour they have at the moment. They, all these different waves around the world, and some of those waves just have to be happen to be at big wave locations. I,
1: um, I think that like the, the the what what that relates to is like you know if you get a, a fighter who's phenomenal at training. Yeah, I was thinking of that. Gym, yeah, has this crazy amount of talent, but then you put him on the big stage, and then it's just like they can't access or the moment is too much. Yeah. You know, like so it's it's the combination you just need enough talent to be able to surf because but you also need to be able to deal with the stress mm-hmm. and the fear you know like it in that goes both ways and too. of course it. that's like a it's a learning process man it's just you it's going out there and exposing yourself to the environment over and over and over and over again that's how you manage it right but but you have to uh, have the motivation to do that
2: yeah. yeah. you're going to see some no I just said it goes but i've seen guys in training look ordinary in training you know uh, sorry yeah, rather than like you know, be a freak in the gym and then can't perform on the night. These guys who look ordinary at training, you know, uh, nowhere near sort of the top guys in the gym, but always when the lights are on, they just bang. They put it together. You know what I mean? And they they outclass a more skillful opponent or whatever. And they just whether it be just toughness, grit, determination, whatever that that they rely on to get through that. Um, yeah, yes, it's, 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 that's that's I think what makes it. Uh, the sports are exciting both in surfing and you know, any kind of sports to see how people relax under the big lights you know
0: one of the things I, I want to segue now is and I'm not going to give too much of a prompt so just going to throw the word out but is fear but one of the things I'm going to say with, with surfing and you guys please talk on this Again, I don't want to talk like I'm a surfer because I'm a fucking joke. But I, I will tell you, I will tell you this. you talking
2: this. it up on the way down here. You got I
0: caught my first wave. I caught my first wave the other day. All but the way in. all the way in and across. Yeah. And when I was- Ah, oh, he's addicted now. Dude. Yeah. And I wanted <laughs> to fucking, how can nobody have got that on film, man? I needed to have that on film. You know what I mean? But like when I say it, like I, because the guy is um, across the road from me, um, uh, Pip He he's, he helps me uh, Shout out to Pip He helps me heaps <laughs> And the guy be, Lives behind me um, Joel uh, He actually Competed in like The smaller waves Not the big waves That you guys do And I think he, he Was ranked 12th In the world As a junior So he's yeah, yeah. He's older guy now But you know he's He helps me And I think uh, He's got a younger brother Named Jackson Jackson Forbes I think that knows you guys Or knows Richie yeah, Or something I know like that name yeah yeah and, and he he's he's helps him he helps me too but that particular day it was only me and eli that were there and i was like F- how the fucking nobody have seen me catch a wave you, fucking hell.
2: feeling is what you, you chase forever no matter what level of surf you are how long you've been surfing dude i'm trying the, it's i, the, it's I the, rang them and i was like yeah. trying to
0: tell people that were like i was going to ring richie but then i thought you know don't it don't bother people you're a fucking <laughs> retard it was like it was. i'll prob- t- I t- I, I, I tell you
1: why It's better sometimes to not have the footage like you don't want to spot like what you felt is the best view. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Like just, you don't want to watch footage because this happens to every surfer, no matter what level you are. Is like you'll feel something amazing in the surf, and then you watch the footage, and it doesn't look anywhere near as good as what it felt. And you're just like, oh no, really? Like, yeah, it's like when you find like, out the when you find out the secret
0: of a magic trick, and you're like, oh, that's shit. You can never yeah. see that <laughs> exactly. magic trick again. You know, like that's what it was like for me. But my point that I was going to say to you is like going out and starting first of all it shouldn't be called surfing it should be called paddling because that's just fucking hard that's 99% like nine percent of the sport that's ridiculously hard so that's the first thing and but when i'm getting into fear what i was going to say about fear is the thing that people have never surfed is like the ocean actually roars like the wave it like roars like when you when you're st- like in the, I'm, I'm not even good enough to be in the lineup but when somebody takes me out and it's, like, a bit past the breakers and I'm watching the waves, like, from – you guys know exactly what I mean. You watch yeah, the wave –
2: Yeah, it's like a live. It's like, it's like you're in
0: a – Yeah, if, from behind it. Like, you're from behind it and you watch it go – Yeah. Like that. And the waves aren't big that I'm talking about. And so, with you guys, when you guys go out to, I don't know, like, Chopu or um, Shipstern or whatever, and you see that roar – of the wave, because I imagine it's going to be quite a bit bigger than my break here at Sharky's. Do you, do you shit yourselves? Yep, <laughs>
1: absolutely. The, the part where the part that's really nerve wracking is the night before. And if you're in Hawaii or Tahiti and you're staying close to the waves and the swell like arrives during the night, it's like it wasn't there in the day, you can't hear the noise. And then you're like slowly falling asleep and the, the big swell is starting to arrive. And then all of a sudden, you're just hearing like this this roar, like thunder outside, and you're too. just like the night before. You're like, "Oh my god, the waves are here!" Like it's you got to start thinking about it all night. It's terrifying.
0: Yeah. So you you can feel it, you can hear it. Yeah, like you I feel what I'm talking about.
2: A- absolutely. But Tom's 100. We a hundred. Trip with with Mark uh, to Tahiti, and, and we had a swell that went for three days. You know, it was a, like a toe sized swell. So like you know. Sort of twelve to fifteen foot plus, and it's exactly what he was referring. to. You could, we were saying so close to where the wave broke, you could hear, you could smell it, you could see you, know, you could smell the sea salt and the, uh, you could you, know, you could feel the waves break, and it it is it, it's, it's just it's just you you're in awe you know it's in, in awe of Mother Nature and the power of the ocean when, when you see it and when you're in the lineup, and it is intimidating. It's it's like you know a gorilla pounding his chest in front of you. Whatever it's just when you when you see it and the amount of white water explode up into the air and the sound and you know the noise it makes. It's um, yeah. You you you, you, you realise that you you, you feel so significant compared to the ocean, like you such a yeah, what it can do to you. So again, it just gives, builds that healthy respect.
0: Fuck beyond a healthy respect. What and Cyclops? what's Cyclops like?
1: Uh, I, I I I don't know. It would have been twenty years the last. Sorry, time can I've you guys
0: describe month. Cyclops for people that don't know? Okay.
1: So, Cyclops is a wave that breaks down off Esperance in Western Australia, and it's so shallow where the wave breaks that it's, it's basically breaking on bare reef. Like is it probably, offshore,
0: Mark? Is it offshore? Yeah, I
1: mean, it, offsh- it breaks like two miles offshore, like two or three kilometres offshore. And yeah, deep water breaks on a reef that's probably an inch deep. And to me, I, I, I rode a wave there, it would have been 20 years ago or longer, and I feel like that was the closest I've come to dying. I made the wave, but I, I thought, like, there was a moment where I'm like, if I would have fallen, I would have died, and I've never <laughs> gone back there ever since. I don't think it's a, I don't think it should be just called a surf spot. It shouldn't be in the category of surf spot. I don't think yeah. it's, like, a proper rideable wave. It's, like, it's yeah. too risky, basically. The, uh, the, the risk outweighs the reward. <laughs> have you surfed it?
2: Yeah, yeah. I've surfed it with Mark. We did a few trips there, and and it's just such a beautiful looking wave. They're so photogenic and that's why servers kept going back. I'm, I don't think anyone's been there for 15 years plus now, but
0: Oh really, hour, why not?
2: Huh? Why not? Well, just cause what Mark said, it's not really a surfable wave. It's not an enjoyable, high quality wave where you're gonna get a long barrel, get spat out and, you know, do amazing turns. Um, Things a vampire,
1: like, <laughs> like you, you gotta think of it, it's like, it's like this beautiful vampire. It's like, it lures you in because from the boat, it looks so amazing because you can't see how shallow it is. And then like once you've let go of the rope from behind the jet ski and then you're rolling down this wave, that's when you see how shallow it is. And you're just like, what have I got (laughs) myself into? Mm. And I I think I've I've wiped out on maybe three waves there and survived. There's been a few people though that have hit the bottom. One kid almost killed himself, broke, like fractured his whole skull. It's uh, back to yeah, I bottom. think of it'll it like, like that. It lures you in and then it'll kill you. It's just yeah. not worth
2: surfing. Yeah, it's that bad. It, it, it's not. It's not a really surfable wave. It's not. Yeah, like Mark said, it shouldn't be called a surf spot. It should be, just be called like a break. Yeah, like a, you go to a like you can, off, can ride it, at- like little like freak of nature, or you go to watch a yeah a waterfall or something. It's like it's, a, it's an amazing, little act of nature. But it, sh- it shouldn't really be surfed, and one, it's, its in the middle of these scattered little islands. It's, it's the sharkiest. You know, it's sharky as well. Yeah, ever, yeah, it's super sharky, and then uh, and the wave is just like the percentage of falling off on, on any wave you catch up there is ridiculously higher than any other wave I, I could imagine. Yeah, and then and then the consequences of falling off, you know, uh, just make it. And now if- that I, I I try to add a little bit of risk assessment <laughs> <laughs> yeah. by like surfing, it's just like doesn't even get it the time of day. It's just. Yeah.
0: Cuz cuz just to put in perspective, have people from other countries like Perth is the most isolated city on earth and this place is not near Perth. So you're you're and you, and then you're out 2k's in the 3k's out into the ocean. So if you fall off and you hurt yourself, like if, if that injury had happened the the leg one that happened to you, you'd be Dead, Dead as disco. Yeah. Not only
2: that because you can't even make a phone call. Like, you've got no range, to reset, like, no nothing. So that's, yeah, you, you just, you've got to fend for yourself. And there was a, uh, a situation that did happen there where Mark and Kobe were surfing and uh, Kobe fell on a wave and hit the bottom and hit the, hit the, the reef hard enough to re- require stitches down his arm. And, and, um, and cut, like he was bleeding pretty profusely. I you know, worried I'd cut some, some serious veins in his arm. And it was um yeah it was a long road back to the, the hospital like luckily he was still able and could you know, climb on the ski and get in the boat and you know get in the car and drive so I was lucky in that respect but it was um yeah like that was just a, a cat scratch compared to what could happen out there and and then when it does hit the fan yeah the logistics of getting help is is crazy
0: what a what what kind of sharks
2: the biggest ones you could imagine <laughs> that, yeah the, in the, the Great Australian Bite which is where Esperance is you know, it's on the western side of the the Great Australian Bite. It's yeah, it's where they've done documentaries whites, on, on yeah, on the, some of the biggest Great Whites, and I think in Esperance too. There's to been abattoir there, so this like even like even make it even more sketchy because the Great Whites used to hang around apparently where the abattoir used to have like runoff and stuff. So there's all kinds of crazy stories that you didn't want to hear before you went serving. Um, but yeah, that's they're some of the biggest whites you'd find on on the earth. On, yeah, for sure.
0: Fuck me, Dad. That's scary. Um, so how do you... W- what's your relationship with fear? Like, what's the... How... Because I, I know you guys have spoken on this a lot and everything, but, like, all these things that we've spoken about was kind of like, obviously... He, so how do you work with it? Because, sorry, before before either one of you answer, what I noticed more, and this is just because I've known Richie for a long time, maybe more than 10 years now, um, I feel that Richie... And you guys have touched on it, but correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, or, or you. I find Richie to be much more instinctual, much more in the moment as far as that's concerned. I find you to be much more, I actually relate to you a lot more and like I'm much more cerebral cerebral, calculating kind of person to the point that sometimes it's not beneficial to me. Um, so, your, your, your relationship to fear, though, is different, For I think, for both of you. Um, Can you guys speak to that?
1: Yeah, I think that's why we made such a good team when we were like chasing big waves together because I love the fact like I'm overly neurotic in that I'll think about all the worst things that are going to happen and like I want to like do things right to sort of take out as much risk as I can. And if I have another person like that with me. It's like that just magnifies all the fear and the danger like we just bounce off each other where i felt i loved going with rich because rich had way more of that attitude that was like ah, we'll be right like let's just do it we'll be right you know like so it was like I, i'd bring a bit of like structure and safety into rich's world yeah and then, but he'd bring that extra like don't worry about it you'll be right you know like so it was like that perfect combination because you, you needed to take the as much risk out as you could, but you also, like, when the time came and the monster wave was coming through, like, you had to go, you know? Like, you were going to take off on that thing. Like, that's what you're there for. That's what you're doing. You've done the preparation. So, for me, I love the fact that I always had that person that I felt, for me, was like, would, had less fear than me. Like, that would charge that wave harder than me. And that would bring, you know, the best out of me because we're also pretty competitive, you know. Like, we want to get the biggest wave of the day. So it's like if if Rich positioned himself deeper in the wave, which is like makes it more critical and harder, work deeper inside the barrel. Then on the next wave, I'm like, yeah, okay, I, I want to go deeper. And like, and that that that's what made us work so well together. Because I've travelled with other people that uh, are really scared and neurotic like me, and then it becomes um like I'll say one thing that could go wrong and they're like, yeah, yeah, that could go wrong for sure. And then we just go like that until you just don't want to do it, you know, like so.
0: Yeah, if I, 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 if, I, I, if I went done. with you, yeah, we'd just end up playing Scrabble, I think. You know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. Like, <laughs> <You pull laughs> <yourself out. laughs> There'd be no fucking surfing. Yeah. Um, and for you, Richie, what's that relationship like for you with, with fear? Is it is it yeah. what he says? Do you feel less fear?
2: Um, I don't I feel less fear, but I I, I, um, I try not to get caught up in it, you know what I mean? It's about... Um, like, I think, yeah, like just jump in, just rip the band aid off, you know. And, and then, and as soon as you get that wave, it, it balances all out the fear or the, you know, the thoughts of what may or may not happen become a rally. And if you make the wave, great. It, it, if you don't make the wave, you pop up and go, okay, that was the worst case scenario. We just went through that. I'm okay now. And then, so just getting in there, you know, getting into the action and, and, and getting it going and not trying to overthink it. Um, but then also learning that fear that it's all there for a reason and not trying to fight it. Understand, okay. That that sensation I'm feeling, it's it's allowing me to perform at my, my best, whether it be in the ocean or in in you know in the cage. Um, I dealt with, I dealt with that fear and anxiety differently in the cage, and I did it in the ocean. Um, but yeah, trying to get understand what fear is, you know, basically, and um, learn about it. And Mark's been great at great at you know opening my eyes to what you know what fear is, what it's all about, what it does to us physiologically, and and everything. So an understanding about it helps as well, but it, it's always there. And then to understand it's there for a reason helps. Um, But yeah, that's why. Yeah, it, it, we had such great time chasing waves together because yeah, it was what well, Mark said. Such a perfect little coupling where Mark would like break a wave down for me and give me like tips and uh, on, on ways to ride it and little things to look out for and little you know, his calculated brain would just break the wave down different to how I'd see it which would help me perform better on the wave. And then, uh, yeah, like Mark said, I'd often try, go on, Rich, go and get one and send me out as a little guinea pig and then we'll get a couple (laughs) of waves
1: and it'll be all right. The
0: (laughs) the interesting thing with with fear as well is um, a lot of the times, like we're listening to like a a primal thing in our our being, in our brain or whatever, that um, we're scared of what, might happen. Like, say, I, I know with public speaking, we'll, we'll, I wanted you to speak about public speaking in a sec, but there's a book called um, The Gift of Fear. I don't know if you guys have read it. Um, I can't remember who wrote it, but they wrote it. Much smarter person than me. And one of the things that they were saying, which, like, when they said it, you go, that's fucking right on. Like, people are scared of public speaking, but it's not actually, like, sp- the speaking that you're scared of, like, on a primal level. It's you saying something dumb and being ostracized from your tribe, from your village. Mm-hmm. And it's it's like a primal thing, you know? And if you think about who we were, we lived in, in villages, we lived in tribes, we lived in groups. Being ostracized, like, if you were the village idiot and you were ostracized, you were going to get the shittier food, you are going to breed with the worst person you know what i mean and so being ostracized from the village it wasn't like how we see it but we still feel those primal fears like that absolute fear of you know you need to survive you need to be part of this tribe you can't be made to look like a fucking fool and then wear the jester hat for the next 30 years you know
2: um also in sort of way i do when we're traveling together with mark and kobe abbott and the guys who were Again, they're, they're better surfers than I. They're more skillful surfers. If we put them all out in the same conditions, and we're all always go out there and we're trying to get video footage and photos. We running mate. It was super competitive now, like really testosterone charged. And uh, I had to like go balls to the wall and not overthink things and just just to uh, get a chance of getting recognized in the lineup. You know, with those other guys. So that's that's what I would also try and like just you had to block it out, you know, because if I let fear creep in, then I wouldn't even paddle out. And then, you know, the whole point of going on that trip for me would be pointless. But yeah, that was another little element on those kind of trips that are, uh, yeah, I, I had a different way of, I guess, trying to c- compete with those fellas was was, uh, was different, you know. You always want to get recognised and that ego would creep in. And I guess that would make me react differently to fear too, try to not, not let it creep in. Yeah.
0: Okay.
1: I found that really interesting what you're talking about there, fathers was like, that, that fundamental fact that we're, when, you know, the majority of our evolution as a species was in a time when where life was so dangerous, so difficult, and our survival was predicated on being part of a tribe. So it's like life and death, If whether your tribe, whether people like you or not, it was the difference between life or death, and that's millions of years programmed into you, and, and I see it in a way now like it's, on one hand, that can be the ultimate motivator because it's like you wanting people to like you is such a natural built-in instinct it's part of your life that, that you can use that as a tool to be motivated to do things but you also have to understand that if that's your primary focus like just wanting people to like you to get accolades to win awards to prove that you're the best if that's your only focus then that's gonna put you in the moment of competition with a heightened level of stress because you're gonna be, you've just, you're training that into your brain that that's the most fundamental important thing in your world, which is good in training because you're pushing yourself, but in the moment of competition, then all of a sudden that moment is terrifying because the thought of failure in the moment of, of competition or performance standing on a stage then all of a sudden, that moment of failure is so tough to deal with. So it's like, it's like that give and take game of using, you know, your your desire to, for people to like you as a motivator to prepare well, but then also understanding like you have to have an element of being able to let that go so that you can perform on that stage where failing on stage doesn't mean actually mean life and death. You know, it's it's like I don't know. You kind of, in a way, you're running outdated software you know like you, you, you haven't upgraded our software because it's like the social interactions were life and death for so long it's like that's the our software still to this day it's like and the majority of the stress that people deal with in life is interpersonal conflict because of that you know because of that software and it's it just to me it's like it needs to be updated to a certain degree so that, that you can not be completely crushed by that anxiety and and I, I don't know, for, for me personally, the only way to update it is experience, man. It's like, it's, it, the psychologists call it voluntary exposure therapy. It's like, expose yourself to that environment that you're scared of, you know, build the knowledge, build the skills, understand that, you know, especially in life, in public speaking, it's not life and death. You know, I can stand up in front of these people if I failed, you know, not the end of the world. And, and once you get that experience, it's like you're slowly upgrading that software in your head, you know? And that's, I think in this day and age, that's the most liberating thing ever is to rewire your brain to not be so terrified of failure in front of people or not be only driven by accolades, you know? It's the most liberating feeling because then all of a sudden you start living life governed by what you really like to do, you know? Like what, what, what really motivates you and then all of a sudden, like that's this, this shift in motivation that's way more sustainable over a longer period of time, you know. And I, I always wonder that when you're training like elite level fighters and seeing the guys in the gym, you know, if they're going into the gym day in, day out, and their whole focus of being in the gym is that I'm gonna push myself so hard in this training because I wanna be the best. I wanna win, you know, versus the mindset of I'm coming in the training. And I love this training, you know, like I love what we're doing today. I love going through this process. It's like so fun. It's exciting to do that. It's like they're totally different mindsets. And while they're both motivating, it's like I feel like one's way more taxing than the other. hundred percent. Only train in that way where you're only doing it because you want external accolade. Like that's stressful in a sense, whereas when you're doing training or exercise or whatever, and you're actually loving it, it's like, to me, that's way less – seems way less taxing. But is it possible to push yourself as hard in that state? That's what I always find really interesting with elite performers.
0: I I think the – I agree with what you're saying, and I think that though, it's more the perspective of how you look at it. Like, so, say, for example, if – I can love it, but if I'm comparing myself to Mark Matthews or Richie Vass with surfing – I would never have, at forty years old, got on my board, because when I get on my board and I paddle out, there's kids that are six years old that paddle like straight past me, little girls like, and then older ladies out down here, because I live like right next to the water. They'll paddle and I fucking can't breathe, dude. Right? I can't breathe. I'm like, I'm, and then two things. That, <laughs> this is just a little annotation in the margin, as my dad would say lady old lady she would have been like 50 or 60 probably 60 man i'm not gonna lie she paddles past me and she goes oh you're doing this wrong or whatever and i was fucked. like i'd had to paddle a few times you know and then she said to me hold on to my leg rope so she could turn me out and i thought nah i, fucking, I can't i can't do that um my, my point of the matter is if i compare my performance to you guys i would never get on the board but I can get on the board and I still try super hard and not every part of it's fun, but I'm trying to be the best I can be. Yeah. Do you get what I mean? So if, and, you, if you can yeah, go and to- Yeah, you tr- to
1: experience that feeling that you felt when you were talk- talking about that wave you rode the other day, you know, like- That's if, it. If that, that's in mind, that feeling, then, you know, like that's a a different motivation to being like- I want to be better than my mate but there's equally as important I think like they're valuable in the same way they're like they're, they're different aspects of motivation that you can tap into but but understanding that only being that external focus and the comparison focus is can be extremely taxing like to me I always see that's what older athletes that are able to compete later into their lives Seem to have a grasp on that way yes. more. Like they I sort of let that. go
2: of that. One
1: that gives you yeah, longevity,
2: and, that- and one yeah. the the fuse burns quicker. You know, and I think you do need a combination of both really to 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 reach that elite level. But without that joy and that love aspect, I think your your time trying to achieve that or in that sport or where it may be is limited because without the joy and the love involved, when you do hit uh, adversity and setbacks and loss, where it may be. I don't believe you're going to handle it as well if you're doing it because you love it. You know what I mean? If you love it, you're going to continue doing it anyway because you love it. But if you're doing it for those external accolades and then when you don't get those external accolades, it going to be very difficult to, to deal with. Um, so I think like you're saying see that the people who are older in their, you know, in their sport are still achieving and set goals and you know, getting amazing results. I think it's coming from a place of love. They actually love what they do. Yes, it's an element of competition. You're trying to get those accolades as accolades all, but it's a it's a balance. You know what I mean? They can still handle loss and setbacks and adversity. And yeah, I think I, mean, I think I think the more important component is is the love of it. You know, that's what yeah. I try, try to tell young fighters or anyone who gives me advice, if they want You've got to love going to training. You've got to love the sport. You've got to love you know, waking up each day and doing it because any other motivator will will fizzle out eventually, you know what I mean?
0: But but the thing is, I do agree 100%. You still have to that doesn't negate you working hard. And that's the that's yeah. the other that's the X factor that a lot of people are like oh but if I love it or whatever because all the stuff you said 100% agree with it, but you still work hard. Do you get what I mean? Yeah. Like Mark Matthews still there's, works.
1: There's a lot of moments that you don't love that you've got to You still got to do them
0: even nice, if you're yeah. doing it completely because you love something. Like, well, man, with my daughter like I love her, now she's with my mom just for for a few days, not for a few days for a few hours. oh <laughs> fucking take her for a few days but but I love like like it, it, it ties me out you know there's I don't love changing nappies, you know what I mean like, but you still you still do it you know you still have to do it but it's it's um, as far as like an elite athlete you <laughs> you, 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 you love it. And all of that, but you still have to work hard. And I think that the biggest thing is taking the comparison out and saying, like, I'm going to just be as good as I can be. But that still requires a shit ton of work. Like, for me, yeah. like, how hard I have to work to, to, I'm not going to say to catch a wave, how hard I have to work to not catch a wave, right? <laughs> to, yeah. to fucking just get out to the, to like, like I told my, I told my wife the other day it was so fucking funny because I said to her the other day I okay, go you know where they're all sitting on the lineup and I think my wife is pretty sure she thinks I'm retarded you know, but I, I said to her you know you know where everyone is sitting out there on over there can you see and she's like yeah 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 and I said to her I paddled all the way out there a few times you know and she kind of you know you're a fucking retard aren't you mate you know but, but still to me it still requires like. Honestly, for someone, you guys, like, you guys probably get it, but you don't because it's so easy for you. But it requires like, because I look at the whitewash and I think, oh, the fuck am I going to get through that? You know what I mean? And it still requires a shit ton of work. Do you know what I mean? It still requires, even though the level is so low. Um, and I think if you, even if you're competing at a high level, you have to be at a stage where you can come in and go, I'm going to learn A, B, C, and D. I want to learn these things. And you've taken the – as you get older as well, this is where even no matter how much you love it, it requires a different type of discipline. It requires you to go – and I'm only saying this from a fight perspective. It requires you to go in three or four years to have the discipline and the foresight to go in three or four years – I'm not going to be able to just dodge these punches at this level or blah, blah, blah. My reflexes are going to slow down. So I'm going to have to concentrate more on these other skill sets that I don't have. I'm going to have to make sure that i get to bed and lights are off, et cetera, at 10 p.m. You know what I mean? Because I'm not going to be able to recover like I used to. I need to have more sleep. I'm going to have to make sure that my kids are in daycare so that i can have a nap for 2 hours in between sessions you know what i mean and that's why it's it has to be fun you have to love it you you have to understand why you're doing it and then there's also a,
2: a, adaptability
0: yeah that, that that other thing you know what i mean that I, that i was saying before because it's um just because I lo- and, and then you you no, no not even adaptability you have to understand the lack of comparison, I suppose, you know, you you have to know that it's you're doing this for, for you to get better, you know, for you to have gained more skills, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas when you're young, you can look at everyone else and be like, I'll just train harder than them and I'll just fucking smash them and I want. And, and the other thing is, and I want the belt or I want to be on the tour or whatever. And then when you get there, you're fucking like, all right, I got here. And now what? I'm still the same person. Yeah. I still have the same fears. I still feel, you know, still exactly the same fucking person. Like nothing mm-hmm. magical happened. You know what I mean? Like you might be happy for a little bit, or you might feel elation, but it, it's not. It's not what you thought it would be. Mm-hmm. And this is across business, across yeah, yeah, yeah. anything, uh, across. Um, what when when you when you dealt with your public speaking fears, what are the things that you that you did?
1: Uh, the, the number one, like, to fast track it is, is find the expert, find the person who's the best at public speaking, and that's what I did, and learn from them directly. Like, that because to me, I couldn't have learned it over 10 years. It would have been exhausting. Like, I find it more stressful, more taxing than surfing huge waves. Like, and I'm hyper introverted. That's why it's like I'm way more sensitive to, to that type of uh, performance than anything else. So to fast track, it was getting that, that person who's the best at it. And then it's like, just like creating the exposure to it at the highest amount, as quick as I possibly could to get like, it's like tearing the band aid off, you know, like go out and do the public speaking courses, the Toastmasters, like speak in front of every person that will listen to you and just do it as many times as you can over and over and over and over and over and over again to just like it's like tear the bandaid off and get the exposure and the skill set as quick as possible that's that's the way i had to do it with public speaking and you just learn man it's it's just the skill set and i mean it's a lot easier for me because i i kind of say the same thing over and over again um, when i'm i'm telling a keynote story it's like i've got an hour in, up on stage in front of them and i and i tell that story those stories over and over again which which makes it a little easy because i can refine everything that comes out of my mouth on stage you know and once you can refine it and you know it's working and then you, you just confidence grows with the way you tell it but it's uh i just think that's the same with any any skill like you you push yourself into it to the maximum amount that you can deal with the stress and and try and get through that stress get the experience and skills as quick as you can you know, because otherwise you just like, it's just such a prolonged period to, to master a skill and to not be then to a prolonged period trying to overcome the nerves of it. You know, I think that's what like and everyone that I teach is like, if you want to become a better communicator, you just got to communicate over and over and over and over, like speak all the time. And it's one of the most um, undervalued skills that you can have across life, you know like whether it's dealing with your personal relationships, whether it's dealing with, with business life, whether it's, it's dealing within your career as an athlete or sport or anything you want, like the ability to communicate is, is got to be at like at the top of your list, I think. And uh, like the quick, easy way to do it is film yourself, tell, telling a story or communicating whatever you want to communicate and then just go and watch it and then compare yourself To someone who's a phenomenal speaker that you know of, it might be an actor, or it might be like a TV host, or a a Joe Rogan, or or a Fab, or like. Fucking, don't put me on the list, man. Don't put me on the (laughs) fucking list. put, Put it, put it side by side, and watch it, and just go, holy shit! I'm nothing like that person. I'm not doing it anywhere near as good as they are. And then go back and do it again. When like, when and do it again?
0: When you and do, do again. when you listen to it, like even when you listen to yourself on the, I, it's hard for me to listen to myself on the podcast. Like, my, my wife laughs because so when I watch myself, I listen, like I, I kind of stutter. And then I don't ask, sometimes I don't ask clear, concise questions. And sometimes I cut people off. And then I look as well, like I look on the screen and I got like a funny fucking shaped head. Like my head looks like, it's, it looks like it's been crushed in a vice like this. You know what I mean? And then, so when, because when they crushed me in the vice, my nose sticks out, and I got buck teeth. You know, <laughs> and you and you're watching that, and you you know you know what I mean. All your things are magnified, you know, because on a podcast you're seeing my face. You know what I mean? And and it, it sounds funny, but like it's scary because it goes out to like people. I, I think I'm, I'm even more similar to what you say because people think. I'm like an extroverted person, but I'm not. I'm- I'm with my wife. Yeah, I talk to her all the time, all day, and she just fucking zones out and probably cheats on me. I don't know. (laughs) But- but me, I actually don't like- I don't- I don't social- I don't have a big group of friends. I don't Mm -hmm. socialize massively. I- um, yeah, like I don't- like on a typical day, I probably would see maybe three or four people that aren't- that's including neighbors. Right, so I, I wouldn't see a lot of people, and and I, I my skill set is probably of an extrovert, but myself I'm an introvert, and so when I when I do this, I have fucking massive phobia because then you look at the YouTube comments and they're like, you don't know fucking what you're doing, you shouldn't be asking this, you shouldn't be saying that, you know what you should have said, blah blah blah, blah. and I think fuck off, you know you, you you wouldn't do it, you know shut your fucking mouth. But when you when you when you watch yourself do something like, exactly like what you said and then I realize all of those things, you know, and then you 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 work on it and you try and get better and and I am enrolling now to do some some courses, you know what I mean, to exactly what you said. But it, it is it is um facing your fears is a funny thing, man, because there's things that you wouldn't think people are scared of. You know what oh, I mean? Oh,
1: man, every, we all got fears and they, and they can be totally different. That's why people are like, I can't believe you're scared of that. But it doesn't matter for a host of reasons, whether it's genetic, whether it's childhood experiences, whatever, like you have different fears. and But all that matters is if like whether or not you want to face them to overcome them. And by all means, if you don't need to, then don't do it. Like I don't face every fear in my life because I don't need to. But, you know, creating a career beyond surfing the only way I was going to do one that had gave me a good lifestyle, like surfing, was speaking, public speaking. So it was worth it to me to push myself through that conditioning phase. And it doesn't matter what you're conditioning. It's like you just got to get in the moment, feel the anxiety and do it over and over and over again. And that's where that, that like you're saying, when you're watching, like that's the uncomfortable part when you're watching yourself on screen and all those emotions and that tension arises in you because it's tough to do. Well, the, the training part of that, and that's the meditative part, like it's meditation, it's the ability to sit there, watch yourself on screen, feel the feelings of angst coming up, and, and let them go, and still be able to watch yourself without that angst, and that's just time, but it's being cognizant that it's happening while, it, while, while you're there, like you're feeling the angst, ability to let it go and have those moments where, oh yeah, I can watch myself now speaking and I can remain calm and you can do breathing exercise while you do it and just not let the emotional component come in. And that's the same with all performance with big wave surfing. That's what you're training when you're doing uh breath hold training or wipeout training is like you're diving to the bottom of a deep pool and you are having a, a free diver or someone who could hold their breath longer than you try and hold you underwater till you pass out. You know, like that, that's the terrifying situation. And while you're wrestling at the bottom of the pool, You've got to notice that the angst is rising in you as your oxygen goes down, but you can still feel that pain, stay level-headed, as calm as possible, and then that's, that's retraining your brain to not fear that situation as much, you know, and that's the same across all performance. It's just that it's exposure, but then bringing in the ability to watch yourself as you're performing the task and, and retrain the fear because otherwise, you're just if, if you allow the fear to happen. So, in public speaking, if I'm watching myself and feeling uncomfortable, and every time I watch myself, I'm allowing that anxiety to come, and every time it's doing it, it's not you, you're just staying in that mode where you're always going to feel uncomfortable, f- fearful watching yourself, you know, criticizing yourself. So, it has to be retrained, and they're those real uncomfortable. Pieces of skill development that it's like, okay, I'm going to go through the worst part of the skill development. It's, okay, I'm going to, I've got to force myself or like learn to control the angst and reprogram my brain so that this doesn't scare me anymore. But the quicker you can do that, it's like all of a sudden the world opens up to you. Yeah, hundred percent of what you can do, and that's like skill development. It's like there's genetic components to skill development. Of course, you need like great genes to become a basketball player. You need to be tall. You need yeah. To, but the majority of skill is hours of practice, but hours of perfect practice, hours of deliberate practice that make a, a complete difference to what you're able to achieve. And they're super uncomfortable when you do them, but you, the sky is the limit. Like, you, it would blow you away what you're capable of compared to what you probably currently think you're capable of.
0: You know, you know the thing is as well, it goes back to the conversation we were having earlier. You, you can get – Really good at basketball, even if you're oh, short. My height. Yeah, even if yeah, you're a little guy. Yeah. The, the thing is, though, it's like all the shit you learn on that journey of building the skills. If you're going to compare yourself to LeBron James, or we're going to, then fuck no, you're not going to. You're not even going to pick up the basketball because it's just completely stupid to compare yourself to him. You're not going to be LeBron. But like, if you if you were to sit down and write out a program what you have to do to be the best basketball player you can possibly be. There's so many things you're going to learn on that journey. You know what I mean? And hard work is never wasted. The problem is if you go out there with everything you're going to do comparing yourself to... LeBron or I'm going to go get my surfboard out and I'm going to be thinking Mark Matthews and Kelly Slater or whatever. I'm not going to do it. You know what I mean? I'm just fucking not going to do it. It's a, it's a mountain that's fucking impossible to, to climb. So you touched on something earlier that I wanted to talk to you both about is your underwater training. Can you guys talk about underwater training?
1: Yeah, Richie well- does a different variation. Richie does spearfishing. That's like the underwater. That is like an added element of terrifying. I've like, been with
0: him. I go around, chase, fish,
1: kill fish, tie them to your ankle, and then swim around in sharky water, holding your breath with dead fish hanging off your leg. Like you don't do spearfishing, mate. Ridiculous training. No way.
0: Okay, can I tell you this is a true story? This is a fucking true, true story, Richie. We were out spearfishing at uh, Mary's Reef in Cornell with with Richie and. Um, I was swimming back and I felt something, boom, tug. And now, mind you, everyone that's watching that's fucking super brave with sharks, I didn't grow up in the water and I'm not super brave to begin with. So, I'm swimming back and I feel tug in, on the line. And I thought, ah, uh, you know, maybe, I don't know what it was. So, me, me, I swam back like a fucking retard. I swam back to the float. And there was like a, now I know, it was like a bronze whale. It was, wasn't huge. It was probably, I don't know, like I'm... Maybe one meter fifty, you know what I mean one 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 and a half meters maybe and I fucking shit myself, dude. that's the closest I've come to drowning because I I dropped everything and I swam back as fast as I could. but when you when you're that scared, your oxygen just goes. So I would have got maybe oh. twenty meters. And I thought, dude, slow down. You're going to fucking drown. Like, your my body was all lactic. So, I slowed down, got back to the thing. And then I told Richie, and I said, it was his gun. And I said to him, man, I'll just pay you for the gun when I get back. I don't know what level of cheap, tight ass you are, to be honest with you. <laughs> he jumped back in and went out and got the, the, the gear. Well,
2: the gear you left out there.
0: Yeah. And so, that's, I don't know, that's a different level of- yeah, that's a that's my spearfishing story with Richie, but you don't do the same stuff that he does.
2: No, uh, we, yeah, we, we have do that stuff in, in, in the way. past no. together, like underwater training, breath holds and stuff. Um, yeah, it's great. It's just like lungs are just like another muscle. You know, you train them, and the way to train them is to push them to the max underwater, and also you getting familiar with a, um, a scenario or an environment where you know you're going to encounter when you're surfing big waves. Uh, but yeah, spearfishing, I, I love doing it, and it's a great cross training. For, for surfing, for mixed martial arts. I think it's, it's, um, it helps you in all regards. It's so it's like relaxing on the body yet creates such good lung capacity. And um, yeah, I, I try not to, I try to do it as safe as possible. And um, yeah, but like Mark was saying too, when you're held underwater with a free diver who's rolling you around, it's sort of just bringing you back to that old cliche of just controlling what you can control. You know, it's just, just your breath, your heart rate, trying to, um trying to just focus on, on not letting anxiety creep in and, so you can maximise the oxygen you have in your, you know, and not burn through it with that, with that panic.
0: But, but you do quite comprehensive, specific, structured underwater training then.
1: Yeah. There's different components to it. There's like you need to be fit, like aerobic fit. So that's like your sprint training. So you do sprint training in the pool, like 50 freestyles, 25 freestyles. And then there's like the actual breath hold which is like it's re- it's retraining you to just like it's retraining out that panic response and and part of that comes from the knowledge of what's going on in your body like you learn that when your lungs are burning when you're holding your breath and your lungs start to feel tight and they burn and and you can that that wants to make you panic the knowledge that you get is <laughs> that that's not a lack of oxygen it's actually carbon dioxide building up in your lungs that's creating the pain so just with that piece of knowledge you're like oh okay that's pain but it doesn't necessarily mean i'm out of breath yet so that piece of knowledge just changes you know your capacity straight away and then it's just like learning to to manage that pain and not freak out about it so then you you can you can embrace that pain in in some ways and, and stay calm and keep your heart rate low. And if your heart rate's low, then you, you don't u- use up all the oxygen. You've just got a way longer breath hold. Like you, most people, when you put them underwater, they'll panic at about 30% of their capacity of a breath hold. So, and if they don't panic, they can hold for another two thirds, another 70% of the time. You know, usually people panic at like 40 seconds Whereas they can actually, without panicking, they'll hold their breath for two, if not three minutes. So it's just controlling that response is, is the main part. And that's pretty similar to, to all types of performance. Like if you're weightlifting, if you feel like a heavy weight and you panic and freak out, then you don't utilize you, your body efficiently, you know. Like, and then the same, I guess, in fighting. It's like when you first feel that those moments of fatigue, if you freak out in the first moments of fatigue, then the fatigue is going to kick in way harder, way faster. But if, you, if you're if you comfortable feeling the fatigue and, and you don't mentally panic, then you might have like a little extra sort of uh, gas in the tank. You know, I used to speak to a lot of rugby league players about that and it's like they have those moments in the line where they're coming on and if they like kind of panic about it, then they just, their gas tank's blown out so quick. But it's like, if they learn to manage that, it's like, yeah, I feel tired, but it's okay. It's going to pass. And then they, it's just like you kick into another gear and then you can sort of access this this level of um, sort of endurance that you couldn't before. Like, yeah, I just think there's a there's a lot of like physical and, and genetic components to that yeah, of endurance. Course. Yeah. But but I think the mental part is, is massive too. Yeah.
2: I will just say, I think that's what you, we, we, you know. You mentioned Nate Diaz before. That's he creates that panic in his opponent. You know, yeah, it's constant 100%. pressure. His little feints, his little movements. It's constantly creating little bits of panic in his opponent, which you know zaps their gas tank, destroys their confidence. You know? And then this elite World Cup athlete athlete just looks like a, a stun mullet in front of him. You know, and that that's what he's so good at doing because he's mentally. He just knows his game plan. He's so like mentally tougher at applying that. And plus, yeah, he, he has got great cardio. But you see that. Yeah, you see it all the time. But guys just go go to. They don't know. They panic. They go. This is not work. I don't. Know, I don't have plan B. Or I don't know. I don't. Know. They don't want to be there anymore. but That's just uh, creating that panic.
0: One of the things you said about the carbon dioxide and oxygen relationship. That's that's it's it's funny because when you do exercise, one of the things that um, I read somewhere, a, a marathon runner or something or whatever. It, it, bottom line is. You can always – not underwater I'm talking about here. I'm talking about just when you're running and, you know, you're like out of breath and you feel fucked and people are trying to breathe in and <gasps> they're going like this. And it's like you can always get enough oxygen in. That's not hard. What you're trying to do when you're breathing hard is get the carbon dioxide out. So, if you yeah. – yeah. So, if you breathe hard out, you don't have to worry. The air is going to come back in. Like it's such a strong thing that we have. So, if you concentrate just breathe out hard and breathe – you're breathing normal, you know what I mean. You're yeah. breathing enough air, and it's just a a funny thing because you see people they panic, and they're like, "I'm gonna fucking die!" And you, you think, "Fuck, dude, you just ran up a hill. Like you're not gonna die. Yeah. You're, you're you're fine." Well,
2: that's what uh, it's March exactly Johnny the same. Gannon, he, yeah, they did create this little surf uh, specific workout um, that Johnny Gannon was running here at Marubra, and I actually just started doing it myself while Johnny's been at the Queensland. But Johnny taught us in that a lot of it, it's to do with breath hold and it's, you know, it's to create you know, give give guys more confidence in the water if they get caught inside or have a bo- bad wipeout it's about we do sprints and we do um you know, specific workouts but it's about putting the focus on that dumping that co2 you know we call them hook breaths and you now johnny and mark now these guys who taught me all this is the focus on dumping all that co2 you know getting oxygen and not having that short shallow chest breathing you know just yeah they Getting rid of that too and just get big diaphragmatic breaths, you know, good quality breaths. But yeah, it's funny, something so simple of just breathing properly and get, you know, is uh can be, can have such an effect on, on your performance.
0: What's the longest you can hold your breath for, or you've held your breath?
2: I don't know. We were doing the crew together, me and Mark. Um, we're in a pool, I a totally controlled environment. at a Bond University in Queensland, and um and it's kind of like yeah, just with no like real lead up or preparation. We both sort of sat in the water for about three minutes. But I've done it with Mark as well on the Gold Coast before with a guy called Nam Baldwin. And he did a warm up exercise and he almost gets you in that state of calm, that state of meditation almost. That we were sitting with on like negative breath, So breathe all our oxygen out, empty lungs. And then we sit on the bottom. And something that I thought I'll have 10 seconds, I want to scramble back to the surface. But because of the the exercise and the work and the lead up to what Nam got us doing and, and how calm, yeah, you know, our heart rate, our nervous system was. You know, we were just sitting under there for I think it was like a minute and a half. Something that just, that's it blew me away, you know. what I mean, because normally a minute and a half on a full, full um, you know, full lungs is, is tricky. But yeah, so that's just again learning it and and building that knowledge and that confidence of what you know
0: you're you're capable of doing. How long's the uh, most you've ever held your breath?
1: I've done about three and a half, four minutes. That's and that's getting to. I'd say there'd be another minute or so left in there, but it's just, it's the most uncomfortable feeling ever. that That's like, that's where Rich is like amazing at holding his breath in that without preparation when he can do three mi- minutes, that's pretty crazy to be able to do. That's thats pain management more than anything else. It's like, and I reckon that's a lot to do with like being a UFC fighter. Like you learn learning to manage pain to train that way. It's like, you've, you you've Breath holding, the majority of it is once you get past, you get the knowledge and you understand the physiology, and you, you learn to remain calm. The next step is being able to manage the pain involved, and I think uh, I think most UFC fighters have a bit of a bit of an advantage in that area.
0: Do you feel a lot of pain when you're holding your breath? Yeah,
1: it
2: is uncomfortable. Exactly what Mark said. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, that that it, that that feeling of that carbon dioxide build up. the um, it's forcing your body to react to you know I guess it's a survival mechanism of some sort so you do breathe again you know but uh, yeah it, it is totally uncomfortable and and I'll try I'm always like because I love spearfishing I love being in the ocean I'm always wanting to try and improve my, my lung capacity my breath holds but practicing it sucks so I, I you know I hardly ever do practice it because it's not enjoyable you know it's part of like in any kind of like MMA training, the, the bit you least enjoy, you're sort of not going to return to as often, and um, that's that's what it's like with breath training for me. It's super uncomfortable.
0: Um, it's
1: more like a fatigue pain than like a like a you know, maybe sharp pain if you cut yourself. That it feels a little different to that. It's more like a an a, an anxiety burning. pain. Like yeah. it's a little di- yeah. It's like burning, but there's this ridiculous level of anxiety that 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 comes out of that because it's the most primal thing to survive so it's like i know the pain is it's pain but it's like this different level of of anxiety involved in the pain i think that you have to manage
0: um You've been very generous with your time, Mark and Richie. Um, so I'm conscious to, to wrap it up now. But just to, uh, to leave on a more feel good story, let's uh, let's talk about sharks, guys. Um, yeah. Let's. So, um, good or? yeah, everyone's favorite. Every surfers or aquatic, uh, yeah. you know, recreational activity person's favorite topic is sharks. Um, what are your closest encounters? How bad were they, et cetera, maybe Richie, if you want, if you want to start?? If you...
2: I've actually I feel like I've been again pretty lucky um, the sort of I love being in the nation my, my favorite place to be with you know surfing, spearfishing, swimming, and I haven't had too many close encounters. One that came to mind just recently because of all the shark activity that's been happening on the on the East Coast. Uh, I was talking with a friend the other day and it, myself, Mark, Ryan Hitwood was surfing down in South Australia. A wave Good Monuments, which is a, a super, super sharky stretch of coastline. And you know, like I, I swim in the ocean here at Maroubra, I don't think of sharks, you know. And some of my friends go, How do you go out there and not think of it? No, I guess I don't. But when I go down there, I, I cannot get it out of my out of my mind. It's at the forefront. And you speak to locals and you say, How do you, man? And they just don't, they're comfortable. They don't, they're like, Oh no, we just don't think about it because like they're, they're born and bred down there. But um, yeah, down there, you're always like flinching at seaweed or whatever. Everything moves, you're sort of on edge. And um, we're surfing this wave and I just caught a wave and I was paddling back out the back and I just went over a wave to see Mark and Ryan just paddling as fast as they could towards me and I didn't even have to ask a question. I was turning around and did the same and um, we had a guy, Timber Nathan who was filming the session and uh, he... It showed us up the footage and, and Mark saw it with his own eyes, but yeah, huge fin makes a big splash just out the back from where we we're sitting. And you know, thank God that that's pretty much my closest experience. You know, at the right, there's been sightings of way of, of you know of big whites, which again, I've never laid my eyes on. So, which you know, they also you know, rumors travel fast in, in that in that you know, domain of shark spotting and shark sightings, but yeah, thank God I haven't had you know too much to do. I've had I've been hassled heaps spear fishing by. You know, sharks bronze whalers great can you can you
0: speak on, on that because that's not normal for people like to be hassled heaps by Definitely sharks not, that's what I've normally. got my you know, yeah. my fish and these that's birds. how women <laughs> feel about you when you go out of <laughs> an evening and they go home and they just the braver ones just go I was just hassled by Richie but <laughs> yeah
2: know, yeah that's obviously with they, you know, they're just trying to get my fish so they're not trying they're not coming for me yeah
0: but them. what happens for a normal person what you happens
2: poke them off with your spear gun and you' try you sometimes you lose your fish and sometimes you just realize this is an But do
0: you notice that there's a shark following you and then you look and so what happens?
2: Yeah, well, I uh, notice because they either, like you said, they were tugging on the end of your float line like that one uh, did to you at Cornell. Um, or, or you see them, they come up and they're interested and they, you know, with the blood and the, the, the dead fish in the water or the fish vibrating in the water too, obviously brings whatever sharks are around into the into your space. Um, and yeah, you, you, you just gauge it and, and calculate the situation as it unfolds if it gets too sketchy. I'm more than happy to leave everything there, in my garden fish, and just get out of there.
0: So, how many times have you been hassled by sharks?
2: Um, well, most uh, only a handful of times, to be honest. Five. So, yeah, five times. And, and how big very, were the sharks around around where I live?
0: How you know? big were the sharks that hassled you?
2: Um, up, I was diving off Seal Rocks, and and there was um maybe like eight, ten, ten foot grey nurses came in and uh, get my fish, along with a bunch of wobbegongs, which. Now, neither are super aggressive. Or it's sharks that you know uh, are the ones you really got to look out for. But they just wanted the fish, and obviously, but when they get a bit aggro and they, you know, they could. Sometimes it's safer for you just to give them the fish and get out of there. But yeah, that's that. That that's my shark stories. Nothing too um, to too hair raising. But
0: it's fucking yeah, terrifying. Late. That's <laughs> that's fucking all, terrifying.
2: Yeah, well There's been a lot worse cases going up and down the east coast the last couple couple months, but. I feel yeah, kind of lucky in that respect. I don't want to have one. I'm not. I am fascinated by sharks, and I would love to do a shark dive. And you know, I would love the experience of being it's, it's somehow out there with them in a safe environment and watching, especially the big whites, and doing what they do. But I'm not too keen on bumping into one when I'm spear fishing or surfing. That's for sure. Yeah.
0: That that definitely. Qualifies as an encounter with sharks though. That that definitely does.
2: Yeah. But like yeah. I'm not that doesn't compare to the encounters that's been happening recently up and down the East Coast. So you know, these are these are like these are puppy dogs, they're the 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 wobby gongs and the and the grey nurses, they're they're just trying to yeah, pinch pinch your yeah, you know, your, your lamp chop off your, you. Yeah, know, while you're in the kitchen it's the, it's the same equivalent. Except except for where we've gone down to waves like in South Australia and WA and, and even Tassie to some or Victoria, places where you know they're present, yeah, you know, and you you, you can't escape stories and you, know, you go to the servo, and there's a big replica great white hanging from the ceiling of the server station you know what I mean it's just the, uh, the area is just synonymous with them and, and that's when you can't get them out of your, your mind and yeah I reckon we got, we got really lucky down that at at Monuments but in saying that a local just paddled off and jumped off the rocks as we scrambled up they petrified you know clinging to the the cliff tops we're like did you see something he goes yeah I I saw something yeah we're like what do you reckon it was he goes oh yeah a shark had just jumped off and paddled out so they're kind of I've got to put these into perspective a little bit. We ended up surfing again for a little while, but that well, um, yeah, that one just was brought back to to mind recently, and yeah, I mean, Mark was there; he saw the shark a lot better than I did, and yeah, I'm, I'm glad. I he- think the
1: difference that Richie's not explaining is like the where you see a shark close by, and and it freaks you out, or there's the shark encounter where the shark's trying to eat you, like yeah, it wants yeah. to kill you like that's the, the the like and i've never had that and but like we've seen these sharks and they're splashed near us but they could have been chasing a fish or they could have just been checking out but not having a go at you like that's a whole different kettle of fish like i feel like i'd be it'd take me a long time to go back in the water if if i had a big white or some other shark like really try and get you you know like bite your board or you know completely knock you off your board and try you know that's a that's a different encounter i think yeah. that's that's terrifying and but it seems like at the moment it seems like there's way more sharks than there ever was i've never i've got three deaths in in probably like 300 kilometers of coastline just up here in like sort of northern new south wales into queensland like
0: that's only here, recently eh?
1: here a death last week on the uh cool and on the gold coast there hasn't been there hasn't been a attack here in 70 years, I think, and a guy's just eaten by a, a, a great white that is the size of a friggin submarine. Like that's and that's that is in shallow water, lots of people out surfing. Like that's crazy. Like to me, that seems like there's way more sharks. It, the 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 theory is there's way more whales, which means it's bringing way more sharks to, that follow the whales, and then some of them are just too useless to to eat a whale or catch a fish and so they go after a human
0: can you can you speak to that because you were you were you were speaking off camera you were um in the lineup when the gentleman was taken recently can you speak
1: yeah but i had no idea that it happened i was probably anywhere from 50 to 100 meters up the point from him like away and i was surfing up there catching waves and, and I had no idea that this went on. He was like sitting off the edge of the crowd and, and it had happened and the surfers right in the vicinity had seen and gone in, but then the, the word hadn't spread up the point yet. And it, I, I kept surfing and heading down the beach towards that wave, because that's kind of where the waves were good. And I probably got to where he was, I, I would have been surfing where it happened 20 minutes after it had happened and and I still had no clue like people had gone in and I just thought there'd been a shark sighting like which happens pretty regularly like, people see sharks but they're not the sharks not attacking people you know and so I just kept surfing and another guy was with me there's only two of us in that area and um it wasn't until the police cars came <coughs> down and the sirens were going off and stuff like that that I was like oh it must be a big shark so I went to the beach and, and it was only just before dark that I finally walked around to where my wife was waiting on the beach. And so her, the poor thing, had heard that someone had just been killed by a shark. Everyone had got out of the water, was freaking out, and she had no idea where I was. And I was one of the last people to sort of eventually come around the headland. Like, I was already on land. I wasn't still out in the water. But that poor, she had to wait for like 10 minutes thinking I was the one who had been killed, which is terrifying for her so it's been harder for her to you know like she's freaking out now every time i go for a surf whereas i didn't see any of it happen i didn't see the shark or anything like that so it was it wasn't, didn't have as big an effect but it's definitely now way more in the front of mind because the place we were surfing i never even worried about sharks because mm. there'd never been an attack there for so long all of a sudden like a guy dies yep. you know it's just like now every time you're out there you're like looking around, just making sure that nothing, you know, you're not seeing anything. It's a it's crazy. It's um
0: And that time with Richie when you were out with him? That you oh, saw that time the Yeah,
1: yeah. I saw a, a white breach. Like we saw a fin swim through, but the thing that scared me, I saw a white, but it, this was like it would have been fifty to hundred meters further out than us. And it, it breached and, like, rolled. So, it wasn't paying us attention any attention whatsoever. Like, and a local dude would probably see that and just stay out there surfing. But I was, like, I was so scared. I, we pretty much were running on water, just <laughs> screaming at Rich to go, like, freaking out.
0: How, how big, like, what's it? Because I try and say this to people, like, I'm, you go spearfishing, right, in the water, and, like, lobsters move so fast underwater like you know what i mean when you lift them it goes they go turtles are fast underwater and i try to explain that to people you know and can you talk to the fact of what a great white looks like when you're in the water
1: oh you're the slowest thing that's in the ocean (laughs) pretty much (laughs) i i looked it looked to me like a whale like you know when you see a whale breach. Like, but I've seen lots of whales breach and I know what they look like. It was kind of like that, but it was so clear as day that it was a pointer that, like, just the shape of it, everything, the white belly was just like. And if it's paying you attention and it wants to eat you, like what happened to that guy, there's nothing you can do about yes, it, yeah. man. If you haven't spotted it, like, taken a look at you and got the time to get out of the water, you're, you're dead, you know, like, it's not, if it really wants you. It could be a kilometre away from you, and you're not going to make it over 50 metres to the beach. you would get you? In a heart. It's like lightning how fast they can swim when they want something. It's not even not even close. It's it's just that what the the experts and the guys that live down in those sharky areas they're like the sharks always will look at you for at least 10 or 15 minutes. And one guy who's been had heaps of sh- shark encounters, he's like it'll circle you at least three times. So it's kind of where, where this, like the, this is the way I'm surfing at the moment. It's like, all right, I'm, I'm just surfing in the middle of the day when the sun's high and you, the water's fairly clear so you can get a good scope of looking around. So if a shark was going to circle and come and look, I'd spot it from way, like a long way away. See so when the majority of the attacks then happen when the sun's low on either end, sunrise or sunset. And then what they've noticed is that the attacks all happen and the shark will swim out of your blind spot. So, on sunset here, which it was the other day, when you turn and look out in the ocean, you're looking into the sun, which makes you can't see anything coming that way. Like, it's just like glare and and that's the dangerous part because then that, that shark could have been swimming around in your blind spot and checking you out and having a look and going, yep, yeah, that's, that's like pray for me that's safe to eat and then they come and get you you know so it's kind of like the, the part that you're trying to control some of the safeties when you surf when you can see when the water's clear like all these different little things that never used to have to think about but now that now that it's happened and now that the water seems sharkier it's kind of it's good to take into account do you
0: do you know mick Fenning?
2: i do mark is, yeah really good mate with him
0: he punched one
1: yeah, I don't, I don't even know if I was like meaning to punch it. I were you it there? Was just thrashed around. and I was watching it online live. Yeah. That's you what people watching... don't get. It's like, yeah, on the on the computer. It's like a live surf event. It was happening. Time, I, I, I you
0: was know? watching it too.
1: Yeah, it was great. People don't understand. It's like it's like Tiger Woods, right? Standing on the last hole, last part of a major tournament to win the tournament. And then a fucking grizzly bear running out of the bushes and attacking him mid-puck. That's what <laughs> this was like. Like he's in the finals of, of a massive surf event. Like and he was at top of the rankings, like leading the world title. And fucking out of nowhere, this shark comes and has a go. I don't know. He doesn't even reckon it really was trying to get him. He reckons that it's taken a look and then it got caught on his leg rope. And and then so it's kind of like. His leg rope, which has freaked it out, so it's kind of freaked out and thrashed around, and and that's what like it looked like. It was trying to get him, you know. Like, that's enough. what created. Yeah, that's two. enough. Yeah, I don't know if you would be making that 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 like distinguishing factor, like yeah. in the moment. It took
0: him a long time though to get back in the water, didn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean he got released an awesome doco just recently. There was just saw on um. You know, on that, just came out you know, on that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, about yeah, him, all about explaining it. that experience, overcoming it, getting back into it, then eventually diving with sharks and raising awareness about sharks and the importance of you know the sharks in the ecosystem and whatnot. So yeah, it's a pretty pretty cool. Watch about that whole that whole story, don't no? starting with that event when he got attacked in um, in J Bay. But yeah, was, oh, I agree, with Marcus. It's you know like. There's always an argument how you control it, you know. Do you cull them? Do you do Don't do, do, like We are stepping in their environment. Like, we are making a conscious decision to take risk and go in the ocean. Um, but with the amount of action, the uh, action, shark action at the moment, says yeah, going will be a way up of something, you know, there's some kind of management or something that has to be done, you know, because it's, uh, it's crazy and it's, yeah, it's...
0: We've had three deaths in a small amount of time on a small stretch of coast. Yeah. Is that, is that correct?
1: Yeah. That's a lot, man. Yeah, that's yeah.
0: crazy. That's super scary. Uh, Mark, man, I want to thank you so much for your time, man. Uh, where can people reach you? What projects have you got going on at the moment?
1: Um, just reach me on Instagram. If you want to question anything, just direct message me or on I'm on LinkedIn all the time with my corporate work, public speaking work. Um, I'm doing a lot of like virtual keynotes at the moment because uh, the conference world has been completely wiped out with the pandemic, so... My, my career in public speaking is doing virtual presentations to companies, sporting teams, whatever, like that. Um, and I speak on all elements of, of fear and high performance. So if anyone wants to reach me for that, uh, just give me a yell. And uh, anything to do with surfing, I kind of just post it on, uh, on Instagram. So that's how you can follow me. But uh, thanks for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. I, I enjoy your podcast and I love listening to insights on performance because I think... Uh, what you guys are doing, the, the sport of UFC, is is kind of the pinnacle of, of the, the, the biggest test a human can put themselves in, in different aspects of performance. So it's a, it's a pleasure to listen to.
0: I appreciate your time, man. I appreciate you. Thank you so much, man. Take care. Thank you very much. No no worries.
2: Good to Thanks see you, boys.
0: mate. Thank you. Yeah, Ricky.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, and I'll just turn this one off keep us on Loretta yep and Richie thank you very much for um, coming on here making this possible and um, man I had a great time man so
2: it's good to catch up great to uh, see Marky's old weathered head too and have a good chat mate so it was lots of fun and if you anyone out there for a key free carpet quote just the bus <laughs> for a free measurement of quote
0: yeah so uh, what, what projects have you got Did you, just <laughs> that's tell that's us <laughs> well just no, just I'm tell them where the people know, can I'm reach probably, you or whatever
2: just, um, yeah looking up this bung wing and and looking to to bounce back from the shoulder up and then cruise, mate. Yeah. But you do
0: have a, you do have a carpet laying business that people can reach you on. Yeah. No,
2: I'm just gene up though. Just
0: just reach him, reach him on Instagram people. Uh, If you do need carpet laying, he has laid carpet here in my house and it's quite, he does a fantastic (laughs) job. So I strongly recommend Richie for, uh, for that and for ladies nights for if you need a stripper or something like that. He's (laughs) fantastic. So I've
2: been working on that again. My routine's changed with a shoulder. So, ladies, please be uh, be patient and yeah. uh, understand that. Yeah, I'm working. Uh,
0: He's gonna. He has to come in as a police officer now. He can't come in as Richie the carpet layer. With, <laughs> he has to. He has to go back to the old tried and tested police officer. Yeah. So uh, thank you very much, guys. Thank you, Richie. Um, yeah. Thanks a lot.